so I'm not gonna read this to you guys. Everyone believes that heart disease kills you, right? Are we good there? There's no there's no political views that'll change this, whether you wear a mask or not. It doesn't affect whether you get heart disease, right? All right, so what I'll need is that clogging your arteries will kill you dead, right? So if we're talking about coronary artery disease, we're talking about the arteries, exactly, right? A lot of the ways your heart can mess up, a lot of the ways your heart can fail. We'll talk about those later. But this is gonna be all about supplying your heart with its own supply of blood, right? Which it does during diastole, right? So the heart pumps, and then when it relaxes, yeah, maybe I was a little too, I was a little aggressive. Look at that, that was terrible. That is too much, yeah. I was worried it wouldn't be enough, so now it's just like, wow. Um, so the heart relaxes. Is that okay or not? You can hear me enough. I don't know. It is what it is. Uh, the heart relaxes and it does during diastole. That blood comes and closes the aortic valve. And you guys know just above the aortic valve, over the aorta, are the right and left main coronary arteries. And then the blood fills into the heart while it relaxes, right? Important that it fills while it's relaxing, because can you imagine trying to fill while you're squeezing? It wouldn't make much sense, right? And it's also important to remember that your coronary vessels are epicardiac. They're not inside the heart muscle, because if they were, then there would be issues also with filling, right? You want to fill from the outside, and then good. So everything we're talking about is your heart's ability to fill. Okay, good. So all about pipes is all about clogged pipes, and that's the goal. Now, whereas it is very exciting to rip someone into the cath lab who's having an acute MI and pull that clot out like we saw last week, and that's all awesome, it would be even better if the patient never had the clog to begin with. Wouldn't that be better, right? Right? So I'm an old paramedic, I told you guys that, and it's exciting to think of emergency things like that. I love emergency medicine too. And it's easy to look at people on the front line as heroes, and I'm not saying they're not. But what we sometimes forget in medicine is that if you screen somebody for colon cancer at 50 years old, or 45 now, has it just changed, and you have them have their colonoscopy and they find a small polyp and it's snared, then you are a hero the same way. Because although it's not running into a building or an upside down car or somebody having a big MI, the person would have died just as much, just five years later, right? It's still dying, right? So it's the same thing. We tend to like not think of it, we need to think of it that way. This should be, and it's not as exciting, I get it, but it should be. The idea is to prevent the clogs, keep the heart healthy. That is much as much of a heroic move, and it takes a lot more work actually, to spend all those time with these patients who never listen to what you say anyway, and you know, keep beating them over the head. But trying to keep them from getting those arteries blocked. So remember, the primary goal of coronary medicine when it comes to a cardiac medicine, when it comes to the cardiovascular system, is prevention. Even though it's more exciting when it goes bad, right? All right, the most important thing to remember is that inflammation comes first. Inflammation comes first, right? So this is not 100% true, nothing in medicine is. But theoretically, right, I told you guys last week, the intima, the inside of the arteri arterial vessel, right? Then you have the muscular layer, and then you've got the outside, right? Okay. Ogres are like arteries, not onions, right? They have layers. Inside the intima, the inside skin, it is the inflammation of that skin that begins the cascade that turns into clogged arteries later. So theoretically, although the world's never this perfect, if I could have a person 
who had no inflammation ever of the enzyme of the arteries, yet had very high cholesterol levels, they would then never have clogged arteries. And if I have somebody who has very inflamed intima and normal or even low cholesterol levels, they could have very clogged arteries. And this holds somewhat true. Obviously, there's a lot of factors because people aren't just one factor, right? But this does hold true to a point. That's an important thing to remember, okay? Good. Um, I don't know what all this says, so I'm, whatever. It's just studies. So you can look at that later. Or, you know, heart disease is bad. You know, you, have, you can figure me out by now. I'm not going to read a slide. So I'm just going to tell you what you need to send. No, this is all up here for you. Uh, okay, but obviously arteriosclerosis is bad. This is what I really want to show you guys. In the beginning, right? There's heaven and earth. In the beginning, here's the intima. There's that skin in the middle, right? And then as it inflames, you get the fatty streaking. You foam cell deposits, right? The cells get in there, and it starts to have the inflammation, and then you start to get the deposition. Here's the foam cells, and then you get the lipid deposition, and then eventually we get the big old plaque, right? And someday in the future, we get a, maybe a rupture of the plaque, and that causes thrombosis, right? Remember, I don't know if you guys have learned your clotting cascade yet, but you will. And your clotting cascade is multiple factors. It's a big whole tree of just boom, 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 right? But your clotting cascade, when it acts, thrombin, fibrinogen, fibrin, flip, everything that goes into your clotting cascade is always initiated with intimal trauma or damage, right? Intimate trauma or damage. So that's what causes that. Same thing here, intimal trauma when I have a plaque rupture, right? What does your body want to do? If you cut your leg or you skin your knee, you have intimal damage, so it's very small vessels, and your body says, dude, let's go. Come on, clotting cascade. Everyone come here and help, and they all rush over there, right? All those things, prothrombin, thrombin, everything, boom, and they make, they make a clot, they make a scab on the outside, right? It's a wonderful thing. Well, it's not so good here. So here, the same thing happens, and then right here, what happens? I get a little clot, and then I have no blood flow down the stream, uh-oh, right? Now I got a problem. Again, this is an approximation. It says first decade to fourth decade. It usually takes about 30 to 40 years to kill yourself with a heart attack. That usually starts around 15 to 20 years old, right? So if someone has a heart attack at 50, which many people do, they did not get the heart attack from the five guys last week. Doesn't mean you can eat five guys every week. I'm not saying it'll kill you today. I'm just saying that is from months of five guys or other things too. Years of Burger King, McDonald's, something else, right? Nothing is five guys. I love the fries. I'm not saying you shouldn't eat that, right? But you probably shouldn't eat that. So, <laughs> all right. So you earn it over time. They actually did studies in Vietnam, uh, not veterans, but soldiers who died. So 18-year-old kids, 19-year-old kids who got killed in the battlefield. And they looked, and they already had fatty streaking. So you earn this early. So if you guys become parents, or you are parents, and what do we feed our kids? For some reason, when you're a child, you have to have chicken nuggets and pizza. That's end of peanut butter. You can't eat anything else, right? If you ate broccoli and you were seven, like you would just explode, right? It's not right. Like, that's not kid food. But we're, we're, you got to be careful. That's that's not good. We shouldn't do that. So the idea that we have that. You know, small kids, well, they can handle it, and later we'll, we'll have to do what we gotta do. That's backwards. <laughs> you, you gotta get it early, you know? You've already started a problem. Okay, so obviously we, we understand this is a picture, right? We, we, 
saw it last week, you guys understand what a heart attack is, right? Just like I showed you, uh-oh, here comes the clot. Now I got no blood flow downstream. This heart muscle is actively dying. Now, in the new world, and I mean new to me, because wait till you're old like me. When you practice so long that many of the medications didn't exist when you started, or all these guidelines didn't exist, it's sad, right? I keep saying this, it's awful. That's how you know you're old, right? So, we, so there's two types of heart attacks that we're gonna talk about later. One's a non-STEMI, one's a STEMI, okay? Before this silly guideline, which I do have to share with you, and I will, uh, we didn't call a non-STEMI a heart attack, guys. You know, this is a heart attack. So a heart attack to me is a STEMI, and that's what this is saying. So when we say heart attack here, we mean STEMI. Okay, we'll explain all this later. I don't wanna confuse the two, though. So when you have no blood flow downstream, this part of the heart then is dying. That's a STEMI, that's a real heart attack, that's an emergency. Okay, we wanna get there as soon as possible and restore that blood flow, right? So just keep this idea in mind, though, of when you have this STEMI, this real heart attack, that downstream, there is no blood flow, right? No blood flow. What happens to you when you have no blood flow? Well, you kinda get a little numb, you don't move, maybe you have some pain at first, same thing. We'll talk about that. So what are the risk factors for heart disease? Um, Obviously the big thing is the key to prevention, and you guys know what the, this, a lot of these things are. I'm not here to teach you anything you never knew before, right? But diet, okay? The most recent guidelines included the Mediterranean diet as being part of the guidelines, okay? Now, I do want to introduce the idea of guidelines to you. We're gonna to have to talk about guidelines, right? And I have to teach you guidelines. But I want to make sure that we all understand what a guideline is. What is a guideline? So when I say DASH and Mediterranean are the only two that are recommended by diet by guideline. Does that mean that's the only way that you can eat healthy? Of course not, okay? So let's just talk about guidelines for a minute because we're gonna talk about them a lot and I wanna make sure that you clinically understand what they And as a student, when you take these tests, especially your pants and all these other silly, stupid academic tests, when you take them, the guidelines are fine. If you treat patients like this, you're gonna kill half your people, right? It gives you a bad rep. It's not a good idea, right? People don't like it. So what's a guideline? We'll talk about blood pressure guidelines, other guidelines. Let's say blood pressure. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. What if I lined up along this wall here 100 people, okay? And they were 18 years old to 110 years old. They were every creed, color, religion, sex, whatever. Just all of us, okay? And I said to you, I want you to pick one blood pressure pill and I want you to tell me what is gonna work for every single person. Would any of us feel comfortable giving the same pill and dosage to every single one of these 100 people? No. Okay, that's common sense, right? You guys are new, you're not necessarily trained in medical people yet, you're getting there, right? Mm -hmm. And even if I told most people that, they'd be like, bad idea, right? Mm -hmm. You know that if you'd feel better, if you'd be dead, right? And there'd be all kinds in between. That's what a guideline is, guys. These people are brilliant. I'm not saying they don't know what they're doing, but you've asked them a question that's not possible to answer. When you ask them to create a guideline, you're asking them to say that. You're asking them to choose the one pill. And they wouldn't do it either. So remember with guidelines, guys, when we tell you guidelines, maybe less important with the diet, but diet's very important. Um, but anytime we talk guidelines here, that's what a guideline is. It's something to consider, and on the test, it may be the answer. But in real life, Every person requires you to learn who they are, how they're broken, like we talked about, and how you're gonna fix that one individual person. So guidelines, to me, are scary, more than they are help. Okay, so but on your books, test stuff, DASH and Mediterranean, 
okay? And listen, they're both great diets, okay? But Mediterranean is probably a little more comprehensive. If Now, this is something else. Again, you've already figured out I'm not going to follow this, so we'll be okay. All right, how do you counsel your patient on diet? So your patient comes in, and we want to be proactive. The patient's 19, the patient's 48. doesn't make a difference. You want to do something about it. And let's say they have, they're like, I don't know what, what you tell a diet, what do you mean, okay? So first of all, you're gonna see this if you're not careful. You might say to the patient, you should be on a DASH diet. You should be on a low cholesterol diet. And sometimes patients are gonna ask you what? What's that mean? A lot of times we don't learn that. We should, right? So let's say you say to your patient, you say, listen, all right, you're an educator, right? PAs are educators. Like, ah, you feel good about it. I'm gonna be your educator. Good, you spent 45 minutes. You're explaining everything from caloric intake to everything else, to metabolism, you've done the whole thing, and you go home and you're like, yeah, I am awesome. I educated today, right? <laughs> Hallelujah. And not that you didn't try, but what did the patient hear? They heard the first five minutes, and after that you lost them, and they went home there, and their wife said, or their husband said, probably their wife, because women already know what to do, but either way, said, said hey, what did, you, what did the doctor say? The doctor said, she eat better. How do you do that? I don't know. Something about metabolism. All right. So first of all, when you counsel a patient, you've got a max of 15 minutes, five minutes of that to remember. If you have an hour to counsel somebody, have them come back four times and do it 15 minutes at a time, number one. Number two, keep it simple, stupid, right? So if you do this, this is the way you counsel a patient on diet, just so you know, okay? This is how you start. That's it. This is your plate. Fruit, vegetable, protein, carb, we're done. Start there. If they can do that, that's a miracle, first of all. No one does that. If they can do that, that's great, okay? That's the beginning of diet. If they do that when they come back, then you can start breaking it apart and getting a little more. What kind of carb, right? And if you keep the fruit and vegetable to be something fresh or frozen and stay away from canned and other processed foods, that's all you tell them. Don't have them go to Whole Foods first time they're there. I mean, Brines and what? No, it's not going to work that way. Like, you can't afford it, number one. Number two, who knows, right? So be good to your patients. Simple, simple, all right? All right, so what are some risk factors? Diet. Diet's a big risk factor. What else? Diabetes. Okay, why? It's all about intimal inflammation, right? Bad diet causes inflammation. Processed foods call inflammation, right? So all the, what does diabetes do? Okay, so there's two types of vascular disease and diabetes, guys. There's micro and there's macro. There's micro and there's macro. Macrovascular disease and diabetes refers to the fact that high sugar levels irritate or inflame your intima. So what does that cause? Clogging or flattening of the arteries, right? So if I control my sugar levels, I control the inflammation. Microvascular disease talks about the capillaries, right? Oh, I did something bad, sorry. This means that high sugar levels mean the capillaries die and you lose capillary flow. This is a hypoxic or ischemic disease in which over time your whole body doesn't have enough nutrition or oxygen, right? And we see the things that rely on that the most go first, but their whole body is literally dying. But their nerves go first, right? Stocking foot neuropathy, gastroparesis, stuff like that, retinopathy. And then we also see the ability to heal everything else that goes with microvascular. So let's stay on point because I, I don't want to get off point. Macrovascular here, inflammation, more clogging of the arteries, right? Mm -hmm. And one just quick little thing to remember, even though I'm not your endo teacher, empower your diabetic that if they control their sugar, it won't happen, 
because then they will do better and they understand. Most diabetics just think that there's inevitable that they will be on dialysis with no feet, right? They're blind. Therefore, they're like, I can eat cake and be blind with no feet, or I can not eat cake and be blind with no feet. And they're like, screw it, I'm eating cake, right? But if you educate them that they are empowered, that they don't have to do any of that, and they can be healthy for their whole life, if they just watch their sugars, they'll do it, right? How are your patients? Good. Hypertension control, why? Blood pressure, pound, 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 on the intima of the artery. Inflammation, right? Smoking, oh my God, terrible, right? Your age of smoking is terrible for you, right? So is Instagram, obviously, now I've heard, right? So that's good, right? I kind of believe that, but that's okay. I think Instagram might be more toxic, but not to the intima of your vessels, though. Instagram does not cause cardiovascular disease, right? But it's probably unhealthy for us otherwise. All right, so smoking does terrible, terrible inflammation of the intima. Cholesterol control only because we can't stop the inflammation sometimes, or because a lot of people still like to inflame their arteries, so at least we'll keep the cholesterol down. And stress, stress, hormonal responses, growth hormone, cortisol, hypertension, right? All of these things, all of the, the, the adrenalines, things like this that happen with stress, right? The endorphins, everything, all cause intimal inflammation, good. All right, we know male is greater than female, but this is starting to change over time, right? So it's almost equal now. So I wouldn't use that as anything, but on your, for the academic people, fine, boys more than girls. For your patients, is your patient having a problem? That's who it is, right? Don't use sex to decide whether somebody is or isn't having a problem. That's goofy, right? That's goofy. Um, family history, absolutely. Why certain people are vasculopaths, number one. So genetically, they make vasculopath. A vasculopath is somebody who genetically has inflamed intima of their arteries regardless of anything else they do. And therefore, even if they eat well, even if they have good cholesterol, everything, they still may end up with clogged arteries. That doesn't mean they should just eat poorly, but still. All right, and the other thing is, just to be honest, Family history because who taught you guys how to eat? Probably your mom or dad. And if they eat poorly, you might eat poorly, okay? Got cigarettes, like I said, hypertension, we talked about that, okay? Lipids. All right, now the other thing we can do, there are certain serum markers that we can use for inflammation to show us you're inflamed. Why? It doesn't show why, but at least we know you are. And that can really help, that can weed people out. So increased markers, which we're going to talk about, cardiac-specific C-reactive protein, ferritin, et cetera, these things may help us, okay? We're going to get into that as we go. All right, obesity, obviously, risk factor, right? Sedentary lifestyle, right? A happy heart's one that works, right? Um, remember that, th this is important to remember about exercise. People get this one wrong sometimes, too. It is not true that you have a limited number of beats in your heart. That's not true, okay? But let's assume it is, all right? Just remind, right? So it's not like one day you got a timer, it's like 10,000, you're done, Ooh, you're dead, right? It doesn't work that way. But let's be honest, it would be cool if you could beat less and get the same job done, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome, right? You'd probably live longer. I don't think so, I don't know for sure. But I'm pretty sure this is true, right? This is what regular cardiovascular exercise does for you. Remember the other day I told you that in order to be a good heart, you had to open and catch the blood in order to throw the blood. And in order to be really good, you had to be supple open up, right? Really open up, all right? You want your heart to be like a gymnast or a swimmer. You don't want your heart to be like a bodybuilder. You want that strength, but that supple nature, that agility, okay? 
as we exercise properly with a cardiovascular diet, we'll talk later about a bad athlete's heart, what you're doing in, in cardiovascular exercise, you're getting to the point where the heart now is opening up more and taking in more blood. Remember that stroke volume plus, I'm sorry, times, I told you that sucked for me, stroke volume times heart rate equals cardiac output. If I have more stroke volume, if I can, oh, do I have to beat as many times to get the same amount of blood? I don't. So I can have a resting heart rate of 48, of 54, and put out more blood than somebody else in bad shape at 88 or 92 for heart rate. So this very important cardiovascular exercise, a nice boom, and so your heart's just a happy heart. It's like, yeah, things are cool. I got it, we're good. I'm not stressing. Or you want this. I'm trying to get the same thing done, right? You don't want that, right? Not opening up as well, pumping more often, not good, right? Okay, uh, stress that we talked about. Homocysteine levels have been actually back and forth. I would kind of plus or minus that. Depends on what study you look at from an evidence-based side. Metabolic syndrome, any three or more, people tend to get all five on this one. If they're gonna do it, do it right, right? Any three of these five need you have metabolic syndrome. It means you have a greater increased chance for a variety of things, including coronary vascular disease, abdominal obesity, hypertension, increased fasting blood glucose or glucose intolerance, Triggs and low HDL. Guys, notice LDL is not here, right? We're going to talk about that later when we do lipid. I'm not saying LDL is not important. The newer guidelines still talk about LDL. Remember, there's a lot of things that go into it. So if we take it all together and where you are on it, that makes your risk for heart disease, right? It's not one thing. It's environmental factors, emotional stresses, food you take or don't take, right? How much you drink, how much you smoke, right? Everything, everything. And the more inflammation I get from all these activities, the more I'm probably gonna get clogged arteries, the more I'm probably gonna die early, right? All right, so no one's actually named it this, but still, right? Not good, right? It's not true that if you have four patches, you get a quadruple bypass all the time. Sometimes there's variants there. I don't want you to get that question wrong on the test, okay? All right, so another way to look at it is, okay, what, this is a spectrum of risk factors, and some are non-modifiable, some are modifiable. That's gonna be very important. Why? The modifiable ones are in our control, therefore you as the educator, you as the, the clinician, it is your job to fix those. The non-modifiable, you obviously can't, right? So we wanna fix these if we can, can't fix these, we'll deal with them. It's important to know which is which. Can't change how old you are. Regarding sex, it's the sex you're born, so you should know that, you know, especially when we talk about transgender medicine, you have to know it's the sex the patient's born, you have to know your patient well enough to know that's the case. Another thing I can think of with transgender, you have to deal with on a regular basis is that a man who transitions to a woman needs a prostate exam because they leave the prostate for sexual function. But I think on the whole, for this, just know that. Genetic factors, definitely. Family history, my dad died at 48, his dad died at 46, I'm 40, 47. Like, all right, we gotta talk, you know? We gotta talk, what happened? Maybe, might have skipped you over, maybe not. And then the risk factors we talked about, all right? How do we fix those? How do you counsel to do it? Do you yell at them and tell them not to do it? No, right? Take your time, counsel them the way you are. Telling people what to do will never get them to do it. I see it all the time from clinicians, they're frustrated. Well, I told them six times! What do you do when people say that to you? You know what I mean? You don't respond to that. You gotta educate somebody. You have a relationship with them. You have to talk to them. Find out why they're doing it. Just stop, what's your problem? 
that doesn't help anybody. Nobody's going to do it. You know what I mean? But that's what a lot of times we do as clinicians, right? You shouldn't do that. <laughs> this is a relationship thing. You want to gain trust, build trust, educate. Then you'll get a response from your patient, right? Okay, so this just goes through each one of the things specifically. Yes, I told you what I said before sex before. Remember what I said in the real world? Postmenopausal, things get a little crazier for women. That's true, right? Absolutely. All right, oh, I think I talked about all this. This is fine. High cholesterol, we'll work on when we did our last one. There's a lot of ways we can do it, that's true. Um, blood pressure, again. We're going to deal with the blood pressure part when we do the blood pressure side, but we'll talk about this later in a little bit. So one of the things you guys are doing farm right now, right? You are, right? We talked a little about acrolyn reduction before. So just remember when we talk about coronary vascular disease in general, the ACE and the beta blocker are the two most important ones because if I do have coronary artery disease, let's talk about that because we're getting into that, right? The heart is trying to get enough blood flow through the coronary arteries, correct? Now you're born with the arteries you have. It is true that older people do actually grow extra vessels, but younger people do not. But on the whole, you are born with what you have, okay? We'll talk about collateral circulation later, but for now. So let's say part of your vessel is blocked. You have coronary artery disease. So you only have a 50% lumen on your left main or your left anterior descent. That anterior part of your heart, it's like breathing through a straw instead of just breathing through your mouth. Like you guys all breathe through your mouth right now, or your nose is fine, I don't care, I won't, I won't judge. But like, let's say I laid you on your back in a pool underwater, and then I put a straw in your mouth, and you had to breathe through the straw. That's a lot less than breathing through your nose and mouth, right? That's what the heart's like all the time, okay? Because now it's got a 50% blockage, let's say. Now, if I just lay you in the pool and you just hang out there, you're okay. You're not even anxious. You're like, I can do this. Things are good. Now I ask you to start swimming. It doesn't take long until you're anxious, panicked, and you cannot get enough air, correct? That's the same thing with the heart. So if someone has coronary artery disease, if I can reduce the amount of workload that that heart does, that's the same thing as saying don't swim so much, right? All right. After load reduction, ACE inhibitor. ACE inhibitor, afterload reduction, okay? Antitensive receptor blockers can do it too, right? We talked last week about afterload. Afterload is the physical force the heart has to overcome every single time it beats. And if I can reduce that from, like I said, 88 millimeters of mercury to only 62 millimeters of mercury, it's like dropping it from 88 pounds to 62 pounds. It's going to be easier, right? Therefore, the heart will do less work, we call it cardiac workload, or demand, and therefore it will consume less oxygen, and therefore it will be happier, right? Okay, beta blockers are very important in coronary artery disease because they extend diastole. It's a very important principle. I gave you my little graph here last time, S1, S2, and then I screwed everything up between active and passive, I do apologize. All right, so here's S1, here's S2, right? Let's say that this is 88 peaks a minute, S1, S2, okay? We know this is systole, this is diastole, right? Everyone's here, right? We're good? That's 88 beats a minute. That means that if this was 54 beats a minute, it might look like this, right? One, two, one, I probably put too short here. Look how much bigger diastole is now, right? More time to fill. 
Just give me some more time, because I only got that little straw. Can we just have some more time to fill us up? That's what a beta blocker does in coronary disease. So when I get a call from the nurse, which I get all the time, the patient who has coronary artery disease, or even some other issues, but coronary artery disease in this case, and their heart rate is 54, and they're calling me saying, I have to hold the beta blocker, right? No. Why would you hold the beta blocker? It's doing what it's supposed to do. In fact, if the heart rate is 80, you should be freaking out the other way. People don't understand it, right? That's what, that's what the goal is. Therapeutic beta blockade for coronary vascular disease is less than 60. Okay, now, if the heart rate is 22 and they're unconscious, it's probably a problem. Maybe you should hold the beta blocker. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying like 54 is where you want to be, between 50 and 60. And now you know why, okay? So another principle I want to share with you guys, when you start learning, you're learning pharmacology, we're learning how the machine's broken and how do I fix it, right? If you don't understand the principle I just told you, and all you remember is that for somebody with coronary artery disease, I need to give a beta blocker, but you don't understand the principle I just told you, and the nurse calls you, what do you do? Well, you better hold the beta blocker, because you don't understand it. Do you see the difference in your thought process there? That's what clinical medicine is. That's what being a clinician is. The ability to say, I understand why I'm using it, therefore I understand when I would or would not use it, how to control it. You guys need to get there. It's gonna take a while, it's a lot, okay? But the, this is the beginning. That's where you guys need to get. That's your goal. Not some chart that says it's a blood pressure medicine, give one of them. The fact that you see the patient, you see how they're broken, you understand how the medicine may or may not, if it's a medicine, because there's other therapeutics, help the patient, and then you decide based on that because you understand why you're doing it. Or the fact that you would see someone with coronary artery and say, oh my God, where's the beta blocker? I need to give that heart more time to fill. Instead of trying to remember from a chart that says, give them ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, aspirin. You see where I'm going? So be careful with that, okay? Good. Okay, smoking, don't smoke. Good, you can read this later. <laughs> All right, good, let's go. Try not to be overweight. Now, obesity is important as far as the definition. Medical obesity is a BMI over 30 or greater, right? Mm -hmm. And then overweight is 25 to 30. Really important numbers to know. So on the whole, between 25 and 30, statistically, your chances of having a bad outcome medically are really not that bad compared to somebody who is so-called normal weight, 19 to 25. Once you hit 30, your chances of having weight-related greater chance of diabetes, greater chance of heart disease, everything that comes with it, is much higher. And there is little difference between 32 and 52. Once you hit 30, you are in trouble. That's important to remember. And it's important to remember that the term medically obese is not a derogatory term, it is not a judgment, it is a, it is a fact, okay? And many medically obese people don't look obese. 30 is not that bad. So you cannot, as a clinician, just look at somebody and go, hey, you look good to me. Yeah, it doesn't work. You got to do the math. Got to watch these numbers, okay? The one time I saw the 25 to 30 make a big difference was COVID. With the alpha spike, it didn't make a difference. If you were 27 or 57, you were in trouble. You know? uh, but I otherwise, pretty much that 25 to 30 seems to be Hey, watch out, but you're okay. Yeah? Uh, here you go. Yeah? Yeah. 
Yes, both. They are interchangeable because they're both reducing afterlife. Yeah. What makes you decide between an ACE or an ARV? So years ago it was because ARVs were brand new and ACE inhibitors were cheap and that was the answer, right? And you couldn't use the ARVs unless you proved them. Well now even ARVs are cheap, so it's a personal choice. Um, you know, if somebody's on an ACE inhibitor and they do develop a cough, you should switch them to an ARV. But the decision to start them on an ARV now is completely fine. Uh, and an ACE inhibitor is completely fine. ACE inhibitors don't have that many side effects, really, to be honest with you. Sometimes you get the hyperkalemia, sometimes you get the cough. Uh, but there's, there's very little time. The only chance it's going to be we're going to talk about Entresto when we talk about CHF, combination ARV, uh, and another drug, then that's the case. But that's different. Go ahead. Yeah, theoretically you could. Yes, the question will can't you just use ARV to avoid your cough? And you know what, if ACE inhibitors gave cough that much, then we probably would just throw them away anyway, and then why wouldn't we just do that? Uh, but remember, ACE inhibitors do have another factor, so they are a little bit better in some ways. So, an ACE inhibitor does two things, an ARV does one thing, okay? Now, they're not that much better that you can't use them, but one of the reasons you may choose to have an ACE inhibitor first, one of the reasons ACE inhibitor is the first one recommended and not an ARV, is that it also volume reduces a little bit. Okay, so it can give a little boost because ACE inhibitors affect the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and they vasodilate. But ARVs, obviously, they go straight to the source and they just vasodilate. So, in some ways, ACE inhibitors are a little better medication and it's on the whole pretty well tolerated. Uh, the other thing might be, uh, and this is important, this talks about what we said before knowing your patient, having a relationship with your patient, asking them what's going on. If somebody has no money, uh, ACE inhibitors are almost all that. Like Lucinopril is a public free drug, Walmart free drug. So uh, it's hard to get the ARVs as free drugs, even though they're still pretty cheap nowadays, generic. Uh, and you have to watch that too. They'll start for a while, came from China, and it was bad. And they, they pulled it off the market. They, you have to watch all these things. A lot of different reasons there. You know. But clinically, it's the fact that the ACE inhibitor has a little more effect. It was a great question. Thank you. That's exactly what I need. All right. Uh, alcohol and stress. All right. This is, I like, I like this because I'm giving you guys the lecture. It says if you have a type A personality, you're in trouble, right? It, does anybody here not have a type A person? Like, you didn't get the PA school because you weren't type A plus, right? Me too. Like, what does it take to get here? Like, you know, whatever's worse than AIDS, you know. You guys weren't sitting on your butt all day to get the PA school, right? So sorry about that. I can't fix that part. They say if you don't sleep eight hours a day, you're going to die early too. If that's the case, I should be dead, okay? <laughs> Four hours on the average, right? No, for many years of my life, because this is what medicine does to you. Uh, we just, we're just trying to get through the day doing all the things we tell people not to, like you stop quick, you grab a burger, you're trying to get to the ER to get to your patients, you didn't sleep the night before, you're trying not to smoke or anything, but still, like, come on. All right, so for alcohol, this, we had to be careful when this came out that some of the studies showing that one glass of wine a day may yeah, make it the doctor way. I like the apple for that, but I got you. It may it may improve your heart outcome because of the resveratrol, which you can get resveratrol just on a supplement basis. You don't have to drink wine. But if you like some red wine, it's red wine here, go for it. The problem was that people told their patients, you could have a glass of wine a day. And the problem is if the patient comes in the next day and you ask them, they say, yes, I had one glass of wine, the bottle is made of glass. That's what you get from your patients, right? That's 100%, right? So, so more than, and one glass, by the way, was three ounces. It wasn't like, you know, they're like a fish bowl, <laughs> you know. They had it made for them. It has a name on it. 
then it is most likely angina, non-STEMI or STEMI, that's where we're going to start. There are other causes in a big way, right? Okay, great, all right. So what causes coronary ischemia? You know, what are some of the things that can cause downstream where the heart's not getting enough oxygen and therefore is having pain and or dysfunction depending on how bad it is? Spasm can do it. Sometimes people have nice clean arteries but their arteries spasm up and when they do, they squeeze and then downstream, they're not getting so much blood, right? Okay, good. Cocaine and methamphetamine and regular amphetamine don't do so. Don't do cocaine. In case anybody had plans this weekend, I'm sorry you have to call your friends. You're like, yeah, I was going to go and a couple lines, but Jim said no. I'm sorry, right? Again, <laughs> you cannot blow coke this weekend. It's bad. In its most acute form, you get such spasm, you actually have a heart attack and die. In its more chronic form, people who are regular users have spasm, spasm, spasm that causes hypoxia, hypoxia, and eventually their heart just slowly becomes a dilated mess, right? A variant of Prismatol we'll talk about. We'll talk about catecholamine induced, we'll talk about SUBO, right? We're gonna go through all these things, okay? All different reasons why you would have downstream hypoxemia, which can be transient, it can be more permanent, whatever we're talking about, okay? Good. We need to talk about that chest pain, right? So history is always important. I told you guys last week I gave you that silly little abdominal thing, right? One thing is just abdominal, all right, fine. So in this case, for chest pain, it's the same thing. You need to dig deep. Now, in an emergency situation, this can be difficult, depending on how uncomfortable the patient is or how quickly the patient is trying to die, right? But you need to do it as quickly as you can because this will help you to get the information. Now, if the patient can't give you the information, who do you get the information from? Family member. Anybody, right? Yeah, family, someone who's with them, anything you can. In the emergency situation. If you're in the ER, grab what you can, okay? When you're admitting the patient to the ICU or they've been there for a couple of days, you call an admitting physician, you call other people, talk to people in the team or to the family members, talk to people. Don't just read the chart, you're getting nothing to the chart. That people don't even look at what they read or write now anyway, they just copy it over, right? Which you should never do. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna talk about all these things that are very important. That's where it comes to Chlorodep, which will be here some point. I'm just going through them one at a time, right? So some point I have cleared up in here, which you guys do all cards, right? Or something else, or all charts, something else like that. Um, so we'll get to that. We're gonna, I'm gonna show you exactly what it is. I think I did it last for lecture, right? I gave you guys cleared up. That's where that comes in, okay? All those things, character, location, et cetera, it's super important. It's going to help us, why? If you have chest pain that occurred for seven seconds right here, a week ago and it was sharp and stabbing, are you having a heart attack? Probably not, right? You're having substernal crushing chest pain that's been going for the last 35 minutes, and you're, right? And there's an elephant sitting on your chest, maybe you are. Now, unfortunately, guess what? You could even be having a heart attack and having no chest pain, or a typical presentation as well. But let's at least start by getting the history of all those character location, et cetera. Onset, do that whole thing I showed you, and we're gonna talk about that as we go. This explains each one of them to you guys, all right? All right, so, and you guys know that I'll talk about the standards later. I got a slide for the standards. The standards are what? 10 out of 10, substernal, crushing in nature, elephant sitting on my chest, can't breathe, right? Radiating to the left jaw or the left arm. These are all things that are scary. Do you have to have all of them? No, do people always have all of them? Usually not. But any of these freak me out. Any of these freak me out, right? So 
So what you cannot do, it's done often in ERs today, is the patient comes in, the complaint is chest pain on the computer, no one looked at the patient, mind you, and they start ordering all these labs. They did a whole workup. Patient gets all stuck with all stuff, and then they come in and say, you're having chest pain. Yeah, my eye slipped with a knife and I cut myself. Well, that's, what are you doing? You just gotta suture his chest up, right? What are you doing? So look at the patient, ask what's going on. It happens all the time nowadays, not good. So again, the presentation can vary. It can be part of all that I said, it can be not. There are physical exam findings that can help you. I said that maybe someone's having a heart attack. We talked about last week that that S4 means a stiff heart, right? The S4 means a stiff heart. And if I told you that that downstream area, let's say the anterior part of the heart has no blood flow right now, and I told you if you fell asleep on your arm, right? I use that analogy, I think. What happens? Tingles at first and hurts, and then after that, it's just not there. That's exactly what happens to the heart. That's stiff. It's not moving, S4, right? So if I hear somebody with an S4 with acute onset chest pain, I'm a little freaked out, right? Especially if the S4 evolves in front of you or wasn't there before, okay? That's something I can do. All right, so yeah, look, there's the slide I was talking about. What do you know, it's there, okay, cool. So this is it for you guys. Standard stuff, the typical stuff. Guess what, most people are not typical. But any of these or any combination thereof makes me a little more worried, right? Doesn't mean you're having a heart attack, but I'm a little more worried. Now, just as an example, how atypical atypical can be, and it's often atypical. I'm out maybe three months as a PA, right? I'm working at his office now. Well, I, don't, I don't think I shared this with you guys. I am a guy from Connecticut, right? The town I come from, there's like three people who aren't like everybody else, right? And then you too, right? Okay. And then I come to Miami, I come to Fort Lauderdale for school, and I get my first job in Miami, right? Awesome, right? So I, I really would, would grew as a person in a big way. I love what happened to me in Miami. But it was a big thing. I didn't speak any Spanish, okay? Like zero. I would say I became fluent over time, right? Um, I also didn't know that you hugged your doctor or your PA, right? So the first time it's like, I'm like two months in, this little Cuban lady's like, ah, and I'm like, whoa, you don't hug your doctor. But I learned that you should hug people. It's a good thing, right? And I learned a lot. I grew a lot in Miami, and I learned a lot about people. Yeah. Uh, Shelton, and then later up north. Yeah. I thought she was going to say, yeah, I know what you mean. You speak not. Man, sorry. You know what's funny? It was awesome about what I just said. My kid's born and raised here, right? I take him home to Connecticut like a couple weeks ago, and both my kids go, why is everybody white? <laughs> We're all the real people. Get us, they were freaked out. I'm serious, it was awesome. It was like, it was just a wonderful thing to show the diversity, how much they'd grown up with such a, what I didn't grow up with, it was awesome, you know? But they serious, it was serious, well, they weren't kidding. They were like, what the hell is going on here? Like, it's like a horror movie, like everyone's yeah, old and white. And somewhat rude and a little nasty for that matter. Because you know? people like, we're not warm in Connecticut. You know? It was funny. All right, so, so I'm three months out, and there's some guy in my waiting room who happens to be speaking Spanish, which at the time I don't understand. Uh, that was the point of that. And then he's screaming, screaming. Everything in Spanish sounds so much better, right? More beautiful, more loving, more angry, right? And so I don't know what's going on, but it doesn't sound good. And so uh, I'm like, I asked my friend, girl, I'm like, well, what's going on? Can you help me? And they're like, yeah. He says there's ants crawling on his arm, right? And I'm like, he's like 38. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but he's crazy, you know? And so we put him in a room, and I go to see him, and I'm like, can you just tell him to please sit down? And I said, just tell him to lay down and just relax. He wouldn't lay down. He wouldn't lay down. And that was the whole thing to me, especially after 10 years as a medic. I'm like, you're not laying down? That's impending doom. I'm like, that's not right. I 
don't like it, so I got an EKG. He was having an anterior wall MI, and it's an, in his dialect, I can't remember what country he was from, ants on your arm means tingling. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. Some of you guys already know that. To me, it didn't. I'm like, he's, he's ants. The guy's crazy, you know? So, <laughs> you know, so you, who knows? That was the only presentation that I had was that. And if it wasn't for the fact he wouldn't lay down, I wouldn't have caught that because I didn't understand what that meant. But if I did understand the dialect, I would have been like, oh, tingling in your arm, that's cardiac, right? Mm -hmm. So another big lesson, which I learned, of course, over time, is for you guys who are not bilingual or maybe are as you know, backwards as I was, uh, you got to really think past it, right? It's not just the language, it's what does it mean, very important. Some other things to remember too, and then I guess we'll take a break, I think we're close. Sometimes things are atypical, and there are a couple atypical presents, they're almost often atypical, I just gave you one, okay? So not, ants on your arm, not in here, okay? But two things you got to know. When we talked before that microvascular disease about those diabetics, right? And that means that the capillaries are dying and the nerves are dying. It also means the nerves are dying, right? That means everything. It means their ability to feel. It means the fact that sometimes they have pain while they die. That's right. Sometimes it, they don't work as well. Their stomach, autonomic dysfunction. Sometimes they have hypotension. You guys are gonna learn this when you do endo, right? Mm -hmm. All kinds of stuff. So it is possible to have a diabetic with no chest pain having a massive MI. It's not common, but it occurs. And then the other thing that's important is an elderly woman especially, but any woman, but especially elderly women, this is true where sex does make a difference here in presentation. It could happen in a man, but it's often in women that you have a GI complaint. So you have an 86-year-old patient who complains with nausea, vomiting, some, some epigastric, or even sometimes central abdominal pain, you better get an EKG, right? Doesn't mean she's not having a small bowel obstruction or a mesenteric infarct or some diarrhea or she just ate Wendy's. Either way, I don't know, but it could be that she's having a heart attack, right? So something to think about there, for sure. So not always straightforward, right? So again, all right, that's another way of looking at it. What are the things that you might look at? A lot of different things that way that you can present with that. Oh, here's Florida. Look, what do you go pick her? Okay, so here it is. So you guys have this, so you have it in your PDF, that's fine, right? This is why you're asking these questions. You're looking for these. Any of these things, we're concerned about, right? Mm -hmm. If What is it like? I'm concerned if it's more substernal, right? Doesn't mean if it's sharp, you say it's not a heart attack, right? Because remember, people don't read the book before they present, right? I never had somebody come, you know, hey, my name is John, I have substernal chest pain, it's 10 out of 10, you know, 10, radiation from my jaw, my left arm, it doesn't happen that way. But people describe things differently too, right? Just like the ants on the arm and a bunch of other things I've had in my whole career. So just understand you're gonna be working with some of those things, right? I just said this, just said this, good. Oh, let me say elderly, I did kind of went through that. Elderly patients often have a heart attack and it's not a big deal. And then I'll let, I'll let you guys go to, to potty, but. All right, so let's say this is my left main, my circumflex, right, here's my LAD. Okay, here's my left hand here descending. I'm 51 right now, right? That's what mine looks like, probably, if you're lucky. If I get a nice old clot here, there is no blood flow in the interior portion of my heart, I just pretty much drop dead. Like that's it. I might get some chest pain first, but I'm gonna die. Right? And there's not much you're gonna do about it unless you happen to have me right near a cat pot. Now, if you're old, like you're 84 or something, over time you got a little blockage, so your body started to make what are called collaterals. So you block this, but you get this little trickle body. And guess what? The heart attack's not as big, and sometimes they don't even have that much pain. So it's kind of backwards, because you think if you're older, you, you die quicker, you know? Not true, right? 
So hmm. elderly presentation, two things. First of all, sometimes literally, 80 year old guy, like, are you feeling okay? Eh, I feel a little weak. Yeah. You know, he's having a heart attack, you know? And the other thing is, uh, sometimes syncope is a very common presentation in elderly. So if you see an elderly who had a syncopal event, they passed out, check them for a heart attack as well. Yeah, so those big things you gotta know there. Uh, I said women, good. This is just showing you, this is just for your information, okay? It could be a lot of different things. Good, now we get to stop. The doctor to do exactly what you guys saw in the video last week, suck out that clot, because what did that do? That kind of fixed the problem, right? In 10 minutes, boom. Right, awesome. If you can get there in 90 minutes, there's almost no damage, right? That's your goal. You're diabetic, you're a bad diabetic, you got bad neuropathy, you present to the ER, you have no chest pain. Your EKG shows ST elevation across the lateral leads or maybe the anterior leads. Per this protocol, what are you gonna do? You need two or three, you're gonna wait for your enzymes, right? That'll take you about 50 minutes. 50 minutes, you, said, you let someone sit with a heart attack for 50 minutes. I know it's within 90 minutes, but that's not a nice thing to do, is it? You don't do that. You have somebody with no chest pain, and they have ST elevation, what do you do? Put them in the cath lab, nobody waits for enzymes. But per this protocol, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And I see this happen in real life, right? You guys know what the third leading cause of death in this country is now, and it was never this before. Medical error, thank you. Delay of care, like I just showed you. Wrong patient, wrong drug. All kinds of stuff. Nobody's paying attention. Everybody's checking their boxes, making sure everything gets billed, but nobody is looking at the patient or talking to the patient or the family or about to touching the patient, right? You guys have to be the difference. The only reason I do this, I'm not kidding, I am retired, right? I'm done. Back in 14. I only got back in because I felt so important that I had to teach people, right? That's why this is important. You have to be the difference. Okay, and I still work in the unit so I can precept because I love precepting. I, I can show, I want to show a new group. Well, I feel like a Jedi Knight talking about this ancient thing called medicine where people talk to people, touch to people, and found the diagnosis, you know? And now it's like, what? How do you do that? It's not my computer, you know? It's crazy, right? I swear I'm going to lose my stuff. All right, it's all right. I will be. You, you guys are going to see me as a patient, like a 78, I have an umbrella hat, I'm gonna have a shopping cart. That's me muttering crap as I go. Freaking disaster with the ringing turn table. <laughs> like that's it. I'm gonna lose my stuff and they just can't handle what I see all the time, you know? But in the meantime, you're my therapy because I feel like I can handle it. Like I'm just I'm passing it on. Once I can't teach anyone that's it, I'm just gonna lose it. Alright, I have like hundreds of these stories in my head and I see people die all the time. It's terrible, right? Okay, so you stop killing people, so you guys don't want to kill people, right? <laughs> don't do it. So this is why protocols suck, okay? Frankly, okay? That's why you shouldn't use protocol. A non-STEMI, I'll explain a little more later. All a non-STEMI is, guys, is some situation in which there was a little hypoxia to the heart where some troponins spilled out, okay? And that might be damaged or it may not be damaged. So if a 35-year-old kid does a bunch of heroin, as a kid to me, I'm sorry, does a bunch of heroin and he's breathing like I don't know, six times a minute for 20 minutes. Isn't his heart hypoxic? Yes, does the muscle get a little bothered? Start to, start to get a little damaged, but not bad, but a little damaged? Yes. So he would come in and we would do enzymes and his troponin would be high. You know what we would say? No bleed. Like I just explained why. I would be surprised if the troponins were normal, wouldn't you? Like of course his troponins are high. It's not a heart attack. That's the way we lived before this. Now you have to say no, you had a non-STEMI. Why? Because if you code a non-STEMI and a heroin 
regulatory failure, guess what happens? Now you get more billing, right? More billing. All right, they're not gonna fall down. It's just weird to see. <laughs> just, just the truth, right? All right, just like you get 36 grand for putting COVID, right? What do you think happened there? Right? 36 grand right after that, as soon as you go to COVID in the hospital. Just saying, just saying. All right, okay, so we have to be careful. So you could look at it like this, you could, but I don't want you to treat people like this. Look, if you have chest pain and there's no EKG changes and there's no troponins, that's the only enzyme we're worried about now, right? You have angina. If there's chest pain, there's no ST elevation, and there's enzymes positive, non-ST elevation am I, right? That just says it in the name. And if there's chest pain, and you do see ST elevation, it's an ST elevation am I, and then you wouldn't have to run as the game positive out. This is the definition stuff. You have explained already why you wouldn't do that, right? How are we gonna figure this out? Okay, so some things that are classic with angina. Okay? We need to go through stable versus unstable angina. Okay? I'm sure there's stuff there, words up here, but I'm not using the words. I'm just going to tell you what I want you to know. Okay? And we'll figure this out later. Okay, so this 30 minute thing, ah, crazy, right? But academically, if it's less than 30 minutes, it's angina. If it's greater than 30 minutes, it's a heart attack. Because a heart attack shouldn't go away after 30 minutes. Right? I don't ever want you to use that clinically. <laughs> Uh, test question, if someone gave you 20 minutes, they said 20 minutes for a reason, right? But clinically, eh, rule out the heart attack. We'll figure it out later. It's, when's it angina? When it's not a heart attack. That's when it's angina, okay? <laughs> Once you've ruled out the heart attack, then we'll talk angina. People don't read the books. And guess what? This is what's really important about the, those time things. The patient said it's 22 minutes, right? Do you think patients perception of time is good during a crisis? No. Have you all ever been in crisis? You know, all of us, you know? Five minutes feels like an hour, an hour feels like two minutes, whatever it is, like you're all messed up. Sometimes they might do it. It's like the patient was like, oh, I'm gonna be having a heart attack, let me mark that sucker, okay, good. It's been 22 minutes, I got her, it's not gonna happen. So remember, when people report signs and symptoms, I'm not saying they're not reliable, because you need that, it's important. And I'm not saying to downplay it. But I'm saying you also have to understand that it may be a little subjective, because it is. Okay, so angina now, we need to make a few different definitions of angina. Angina can be classic or vasospastic, that's the first split we're gonna put, okay? Can be classic or it can be vasospastic. In classic angina, it is as I explained before, you have an artery that is, let's say, 50% blocked, okay? That's classic angina. So therefore, since it's partially blocked, when you are at rest, you're good. Myocardial demand is low, you're fine, heart rate is low, everything's okay. Not just like low, but lower than if you're excited. And then if I have exertion, and I ask my heart to pump faster and harder, and therefore the heart starts to demand more blood, it starts to get crampy, because it can't get enough oxygen. So classic angina is exertional. Classic angina is exertion, right? Vasospastic angina. I have a clean artery, and I'm sitting, let's say, watching the dolphins play. That's different. That's dolphins induced chest pain, right? <laughs> uh, could be suicide as well. It just depends. <laughs> all right, so I'm sitting watching the game, whatever, and all of a sudden my coronary vessels go, <laughs> and downstream I don't have any blood flow or I have less blood flow. 
So this is at rest. So usually, vasospastic or prince metal angina happens at rest. Okay. Now, let's be honest. This is a clinical course. If at 32 someone's diagnosed with prince metal angina, at 64 they can have both. Correct. So when you're older, vasospastic angina is much harder to diagnose because often people already have some clogging as well, and you're not sure. But very often, prince metal or vasospastic angina, also called variant angina, presents in a younger person. The first attacks usually in the 20s to 30s, tends to be more males than females, but anybody can happen. They get a chest pain event while at rest. Okay? Here's another really big difference between prince metal and classic angina. In classic angina, the blood vessel was partially blocked, right? So here's classic angina. Here's a vessel and partially blocked. So here's this is where the blood goes through, right? That doesn't change very quickly, right? That clocking happens slowly over time, right? So in classic angina, I said that you were fine until you exerted yourself and then there wasn't enough blood. And then when you calm back down, the chest pain will probably go away. You might need some help. In Prince Metal Angina, all of a sudden the, the vessel spasms. This is very similar to what happens in cocaine-induced issues as well, right? Spasms, to the point where sometimes the spasm is so bad there's almost no blood downstream. So Prince Metal or Varian Angina can present looking like a heart attack. 32-year-old male presents DR after being woken from sleep or at rest or sitting watching a game, whatever it was had sudden onset of gripping subsonal chest pain related to his left arm. You do the EKG and you've got anterior ST elevation. You put him in the cath lab, you cath him, and what do you find? Everything's okay, right? Give him some nitro, kick the spasm, you're good. I mean, right, give him the cath, right? Bless So, because it can cause the acute spasm where it, this one just always stays the same size, it can actually shoot. Now you can get that downstream where it looks like a heart attack. It'd be very confusing, right? So the big differentiation between Prince Metal Angina and Classic Angina is that Prince Metal tends to be younger. It's a vasospastic event in its first time, because it's not like you'll not have Prince Metal later, right? And then it looks like a heart attack, but we do a cath, we realize you have Prince Metal and we're good, right? We give you calcium channel blockers usually to relax things, chill you out, you're okay. In classic angina, again, in its stable form, and I'm about to explain that, in its stable form, everything's okay, I exert myself, and I get chest pain, and then it usually goes away when I relax, if it's just angina, okay? All right, so let's talk a little further about definitions now. How do you differentiate stable classic angina from unstable classic angina? How do I differentiate stable from unstable? And this is actually really simple. If you look at the definition of stable, it is either stable or it's not. And I know that sounds silly, but stable is an easy definition, and anything else is unstable. All right, because that can be five billion things, okay? Stable classic angina is angina with a predictable pattern. Therefore, number one, you must have already been diagnosed with angina to have stable angina, right? Your first chest pain event can never be stable angina. And you have to have a predictable pattern. What does that mean? Mrs. Jones has been diagnosed with angina, and for her, 
When she walks three blocks, she gets chest pain, and when she sits down, the chest pain goes away. That is her predictable pattern, and it has not changed. Therefore, she is stable, right? Anything else from that's unstable. Mrs. Jones walks two blocks and gets chest pain. It's unstable. It changed, right? Mrs. Block, Mrs. Block, Mrs. Jones walks three blocks, gets chest pain, sits down, but needs to take a nitro where normally she doesn't. Now it's unstable, right? Follow? That's, so, so just stick with the definition of stable and anything else is unstable. Anything else is unstable if it's angina, right? As long as it's not, like I said, variant angina principle. Okay, good. So how do I manage stable angina? First of all, I have to diagnose it. A lot of times your initial chest pain events still means you go to the cath lab, we figure out what's going on, we see what's there, okay? Sometimes though, we may want to do diagnostic tests before that. Okay? We mentioned that we do a stress test when it, we don't want to do the catheterization. So let's say a patient just presents and they've had transient on and off chest pain. They're having no chest pain now. But they're saying, listen, over the last three months, every time I walk, I start to get some chest pain. I sit down and I feel okay. All right, we don't quite know what's going on yet. Maybe that's when we do the stress test like we talked about last week. Go ahead and stress them. Remember I said if they're 50% blocked or more, they're gonna fail. If they fail, then I do the catheterization. Risk versus benefit ways, like we talked about. If they pass it, then I know that they have less than a 50% blockage. Now I'm going to treat them for stable angina. Okay? Good. That's how I'm gonna work through. So treatment would rely on what? Before I even show you the slides, well, you guys have the slides, so you're probably looking, but that's okay. <laughs> Either way. I want to reduce what? I want to reduce myocardial demand. And I want to reduce afterload, do I not? Mm -hmm. By doing so. So ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, everything we just talked about, guess what? Those are gonna be mainstay, right? Absolutely, right? Uh, we already talked about that last week. So, um, absolutely, beta blockers, right? And ACE inhibitors for, for reduced. Now let's talk about some of the other things that are here too, this is true. So let's talk about nitroglycerin. What about emergency? So somebody has stable angina. You want to give them something in case they have that acute thing where it's no longer stable, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden they have chest pain. You can give them nitroglycerin, that vasodilates, correct? So if this thing is only this big and they're having some chest pain, but what if I can make it that big for a little bit? Hey, that would just at least relieve that, get a little more blood flow to the heart muscle. So you can give it to so them, you have to prescribe it very clearly one tablet under their tongue every five minutes, up to three times, and then call 911 if it doesn't work. Why? Because if not, people will literally sit in the bench and pop 40 until they kill over and die, right? You don't want that. You and I could use more than three. As clinicians, we don't usually, because what I want to do, if you're in the ER with an acute chest pain event, is probably use ACE or IV, and we're gonna talk about that later. Okay, but you could. It's important to remember the nitroglycerin, when it's exposed to sunlight, turns a little bit in cyanide, so you should be kept in the dark. Um, sometimes nitrates can be used in their long-acting form. There's a pill form, and there's transdermal. You guys probably learned this in, in farm, all right? So you can have transdermal, like nitroglycerin patches. You can have long-term, right? All right, there's dinitrates, mononitrates, long-term pills. So sometimes you just always need that thing to stay open just a little bit more. That's when you can use the long-term 
nitrates. Okay? Aspirin and Plavix can be used in people who you are concerned, which is most people, of getting a clot, right? I already have that smaller area. We already talked before that it just takes that one rupture of a plaque, interval disruption, to call all the clotting cascade there. Aspirin will help the platelets to stay slippery enough, or hopefully they don't build up too much in there when the clot tries to form. And sometimes people have more severe angina, you might want to use something like Bocritigirl, okay? All right. Sometimes you can use non-dehydrogenated calcium channel blockers, right? But this is mostly in two different things. It is the primary treatment for Prinz metal or vasospastic angina. And it is the treatment for patients who have classic angina when they're allergic to nitroglycerin. Emrenexa or Melanzoline, this decreases myocardial demand, and it is basically an end-stage picture here, okay? We can use this. These are people we can't revascularize anymore, but we've, we've done the best we can. We just want to give them a little extra work. So that, that's something that can be added for some additional support, okay? Don't forget what I said before. ACE inhibitor, I don't know if ACE inhibitor is even up there, but I'm telling you it should be there. ACE inhibitor, beta blocker are your first mainstays, right? For the reason I said. Now remember, any drug that I talk about in this lecture or otherwise, where I say you should have an ACE inhibitor, you should have a beta blocker. If your patient has a blood pressure of 80 over 42, don't give them the ACE inhibitor, right? This is all assuming they can tolerate these drugs, correct? Mm -hmm. You understand that? And if, there's, if their diastolic was 48, do they need the ACE inhibitor? No, why? Because you were using for afterload reduction and the afterload is already low. Do you see how understanding versus a chart works so much better, right? If their heart rate is already 54, you don't need a beta blocker. Because that's why you're going to use it. Right? So consider that as well. Lots of things we consider with medication, depending on interactions and what have you. But, but, on the whole, the heart's going to win on most of this stuff, to be honest with you. Uh, we'll talk about some of those contraindications when we go through the drugs later, but. Like I said, resting heart rate. If you're already at 48, 52, don't give them a beta blocker. Of course not, right? Chronic lung disease, you gotta be careful with beta blockers. Doesn't mean you don't do it, okay? Especially with a heart disease patient, so you're still gonna do it, okay? Someone already has the AD conduction disorder. They have a heart block. You can't give them the beta blocker, right? Et cetera. All right, that is what I just said. Okay, very good. Uh, you should know that Renexa prolongs your QT. I would know that. Um, you guys probably did long QT yesterday, I would think, or whatever, last week, I guess. I don't know if you got to it. I know you guys got cut off. But long QT syndrome, someone has long QT, you're never going to want to use this, okay? All right. And then we'll talk about this, right? So if somebody fails their stress test, if somebody has recurrent chest pain and they're not getting better, we may consider revascularization. That would be great. So we're talking about classic angina here. In classic angina, we go in here, crush this against the wall, put the stent in, and then when you're done, it's bigger, right? So that's awesome. It sounds great. It is awesome, but it's not as nice as it sounds. So let's say that now what I have is a vessel, the stent is crushed into the wall, and now I have a big open lumen. That's really good, right? Really good. The stent is made of metal, stainless steel or titanium usually. All right, I don't think I said this last week, but this is going to be important. Whether we're talking about revascularization, which we're going to talk about now as a treatment for angina, that's refractory to treatment, 
Okay, sometimes or they fail a stress test. It could be a treatment for a non-STEMI or even a STEMI, depending. Okay, certain types of non-STEMI you do need to treat, certain you don't. STEMIs you will treat this way. Now I've opened the lumen and I've got this metal mesh stuck, literally crushed in here. There's a problem. If blood sticks to metal like glue, bad. So we, you know, when you're a cardiology PA, you don't do a lot in the cath lab because there's, you don't need to be there, right? So you do a lot of other things. But I still sometimes play in the cath lab with the doc I used to work with. Literally, we're running heparin IV, and we're running using Integralin or another drug like that. That's, a, that's an IV antiplatelet. And still, the guide wire comes out after 30 seconds full of blood. Stuck on it, right? Blood sticks to metal. This thing is metal. What am I at risk for? Blood sticking to it, and then before I know it, I have a, I got a clot, right? Okay, so important to remember that when you have a patient who's been revascularized and they have the stent, they must be on aspirin and one of the antiplatelets. Okay, I think I have these up here. If not true, you get them from Farm. There's two others you should know, Valinta, for example, things like that, besides Plavix. Okay, so Clopridogrel and Sugaril, there's a whole bunch of them. You have to have one of those on board plus aspirin to keep this from happening. To the point where if it's a two-day-old stent and you miss one dose of the antiplatelet, you can actually throw both and have heart attack. No joke, right? If it's a bare metal stent, if it's a bare metal stent, I'm sure this is in the lecture I gave you. I'm doing my own memory, sorry. Um, then it takes about 30 days to endothelialize. The skin grows over it and it covers it up. Now there's a new endothelium. Now you don't need the plavix and aspirin. You probably stay in the aspirin because of the coronary vascular disease. Because now you can't stick to it, it's inside you. 30 days bare metal, a year drug eluding. A year drug eluding. So one of the most important times you put a bare metal is when you know somebody's going to have a procedure, for example. They're gonna to have to have a surgery in two months. Do a bare metal, don't do the other. That's gonna be hard to stop those drugs, very important. The other thing to remember is that even once I revascularize, is this not gonna cause inflammation? Hmm. There's a piece of metal stuck in there. Right. What's inflammation gonna cause? So whether we talk about somebody who has a coronary artery bypass graft or somebody who's been stented, you still usually end up within 10 years clogged up again. So in order to reduce the chance of that, we're going to have them on anti-lipids. We're going to have them on a good diet, etc. Go ahead. If it's somebody with a stent, they have to take both. If it's somebody with just angina, you may just do the aspirin. Sometimes, if you feel they're at risk, then you may do the plavix or well or any of the antiplatelets. That's a choice of the physician. The truth is that if you have aspirin plavix together, obviously you're increasing your chance of bleeding issues. Plavix doesn't bother your stomach or anything or cause bleeding, but if you bleed, you'll bleed more. But the aspirin will, right? So I would try to use an agent. There's plenty of study that showed that you have the same benefit from a coronary vascular standpoint with 81 milligrams of aspirin as you do with 325. So therefore, you take an 81 milligram baby aspirin enteric-coated 
and I'm holding kind of get away with that without a lot of GI bleeding and upset. But it can cause that. So if you think somebody's at risk for bleeding, things like that, maybe you would. But for example, if they have a stent, you can't. So I have a guy in the hospital right now, he's got a GI cancer, and that thing is bleeding. And not too bad, but it's still bleeding because it's GI cancer. Unfortunately, he's so weak, we can't do surgery, we can't do chemo. We're trying to get him stronger. He had a stent placed two months ago, and he struggled living. I can't stop the clock, it's nasty, it's really bleeding. Right? Can't, she's gonna have a heart attack, he's gonna die. So I have to keep transfusing him, and I can't deal with the tumor, it's a terrible place to be. I wish they put in a bare metal. <laughs> but they didn't know he had cancer at the time. And now I'm stuck, right? It's a good example. But yeah, you can play that. You're gonna play that. But when they understand, you have to have both. Go ahead. Not usually. It's a good question, but no, not usually. You can have defects like that, but not usually. Usually, it's okay. Usually, it tends to. If that's gonna happen, it happens now. So, in other words. One of the risks of deploying this stent and putting all this pressure out here is that you actually have damage to the, and you can actually rupture a coronary. So if you're gonna have some kind of issue like that, or maybe a small dissection of the coronary, it'll happen right after the stent, but after a few days at least, you're probably gonna be fine and you're gonna, yeah. You had a question? Yeah, uh, how long did you say that they had to be on the anticoagulants? So, antiplatelets, right? Anti Xanacoagulants are things like warfarin or tenase or direct thrombin. So the antiplatelets, if it's a bare metal stent, it's one month. If it's a drug eluding stent, it is 12 months. 12 months, okay? So those are important to remember. The truth is that with a drug eluding, in about six months, most of them get close enough where you might be okay. So there might be some times, like this guy I was just telling you with his GI cancer, like if I'm at six months, I'm only at two, I might pull back, you know, but. But that's a discretionary, that's a decision for a clinician to make. There's no evidence base to support that. All right? So on the whole, you'd say 12 months. 12 months. Okay. All right. So that's one way I can revascularize. The other thing I can do is a cabbage. Okay? I can do a coronary artery bypass graft. Even for somebody with angina, you might have to do that. And you do the cabbage when you cannot do the stents. Okay? So the question is, why couldn't I stent somebody? There's two reasons. One is... There are two, it's just too much mess, okay? So the entire right coronary and LAD are completely clogged up. You can't keep putting stents in there, right? It's not gonna work. And it's important to remember too that when we talk about cardiac catheterization, on the whole, the rule is you can only put three stents at a time. It's a rule of threes times two. You never put more than three stents within one vessel because the chance of rupturing the vessel is too great. After that, you never put more than three stents in per attempt or per catheterization because the amount of dye you have to use to put those three stents in, that's the most the kidneys can usually handle because dye can cause acute tubular necrosis and renal failure. So you go in for your cardiac catheterization, it might be an angina patient, it might be a non-STEMI patient, it might be a STEMI patient, and you see that you'd have to put in seven stents today. That's a good reason to go to a cabbage, right? You're not gonna do it. Regardless, both of them have a 10-year outcome that's very similar, okay? There's some data that shows like a cabbage might be better for diabetics, but it's a limited, it's not very impressive data, you know what I mean? On the whole, neither one of them fix the problem, they buy you more time. And the other reason why they don't fix the problem is what I said before. 
We're doing this when you're 58. Your lifestyle of the past 50 years or 45 years has bought this for you. It's not going to change. Let's be honest, right? And even if it did, it's too late. Just do it. Just being honest. So I'm not saying you don't do this. I'm not saying these aren't wonderful. They're not life-saving. I'm saying you got to be honest with your patients too, right? They have to do the best they can with the medications because we are, we're, we're not, it's not like, oh, I'm good now. I got new pipes. Uh, not quite, you know? You don't have freak of me. How do I treat unstable angina? If angina is unstable, it is an MI until proven otherwise. So unstable classic angina means that, let's say, who's at more risk for a heart attack than someone with a stable angina? Yeah? So stable angina, everything's fine. This is the patient. They already have this big blockage, right? But they don't need anything as yet. In the past three years, she's been fine. She's walking her three blocks. She's sitting down. Everything's cool. And today, she walks two blocks, gets chest pain, pops through nitro, and she spells chest pain. Um, that could be a heart attack, right? Honestly, like you could have clogged that sucker right up, right? Unstable angina then is the only way I can diagnose unstable angina in her is to rule out the heart attack. When I see it's not a heart attack, then I can call it unstable angina, right? Make sense? Unstable angina, what's the treatment? Treat it like a heart attack until you know it's not. That's the treatment. All right, eval, what are we gonna do? This is just for your information, but a lot of stuff we talked about already. You're gonna look at everything we need to do, right? Chest x-ray, might look to see if they're heart failure, true EKG, rule out that they're not having SD elevation, that's important. Make sure the enzymes are negative, right? Sure it's not a heart attack, okay? And then what medications do we give initially? You can consider morphine, we're gonna go through that in a little bit. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna just leave this alone because you know what, I'm gonna show you when we get to what I call mornings of last on how to do this, so just leave this be. Okay? All right, this is what we're talking about before. I think to me score you can skip, I gotta be honest. This is just so old. Uh, and I'm gonna explain why we used it, and now we'll understand why I don't think we need to use it here. Understand what it is so that if someday you live in a rural area, although most rural areas still don't qualify for Timmy anymore, you'll understand why you would want to use it, okay? So the big thing about a Timmy score was you hit the ER. <coughs> or what have you, you look like you were having a heart attack, and then if I Timmy score you, I can figure out, do I have to fly you out to the center in the middle of the, the city, or can you stay here in this hospital, right? So if you go back again, in the beginning of my career, cardiac catheterization is very rare, it's only in a couple centers, and most people don't have a lot of really intensive, even ICUs, um, they surely don't have the ICUs we see today with the cardiac care. And so the big thing was, Timmy them soon, so you can make sure you have to transfer them out. Because if not, they're gonna die in the overnight sitting here in our little hospital. Well, on the whole, most of us, most places, even smaller hospitals in more rural areas in the United States, they're okay. They got it. They even have cat labs. You know? And if not, most of us are gonna live in centers like this. Anywhere in South Florida, this is not a this is not something you're gonna talk about, you know. Um, so just understand Timmy score, and I think I, there's a slide later where I show the Timmy. It's just a way of stratifying. You don't have to worry about it anymore, okay? Pharyngina went through already, good. Pharyngina went through, told you about that. All right, let's talk about now a heart attack for this guideline. We're doing all right, 250. That means I have to let you guys go, right? Yeah. So take your take your 10 minutes now, and then we'll start a heart attack. Is that good? And we'll come back at 3 o'clock? Sounds good. Perfect. Can you read my WhatsApp? Is working? Nobody's is. It's down. Uh, but I was telling you that thank you so much, but I don't need the. Just want to make sure. Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram are all down right now. Oh, really?
Well, uh, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg, I guess, ticked some people off because 60 Minutes did a huge thing last night on on Facebook. Okay. I'm running nobody's WhatsApp is working. I'm looking for you resetting my phone. I haven't even checked the app. Like, yeah. Nah, it's uh. Whatever. I was like, oh my god, I got a
do the EKG. If it's positive, what do you do? You go to the cath lab. You don't wait. You just go. You just go. You don't wait for the enzymes. The enzymes will find later. Now, one thing you always have to remember that's very important is some person's chest pain may precede their EKG changes. So if somebody presents ER with chest pain that's consistent, you do an EKG and it is normal, repeat the EKG in 10 minutes. That doesn't mean you're okay. In fact, what is often the case, you guys learned about peaking of T waves. That can be hyperkalemia when it's everywhere. Peaking of T waves that occurs in geographic areas, the anterior leads, the inferior leads, etc., is concerning that that just might turn into SD elevation, right? Sometimes we see that. So we don't want to grab that and say, well, that's not specific. It's no big deal. You're not having a heart attack. Repeat it again. If your clinical suspicion is still there, repeat it again. Right? Be careful. Uh, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to stabilize them. We're going to go through monitor blast, which is what you're going to do for all acute coronary syndrome. But the treatment standing, as long as it's available, is put them in the cath lab. And I showed you guys why last week, and then you saw, like, why would you want to just do that, right? The only time you're going to consider something else is if it isn't. So this is the way I think about it. Nurse Mona, everyone knows Nurse Mona, right? When I was younger, that's all there was. Now there's all this extra stuff. So morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, aspirin, those are the mainstay for all patients who have acute coronary syndrome, meaning they have either unstable angina, non-STEMI or STEMI, right? Good. Morphine, what's it do, right? Makes you feel good, right? No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't make you feel good. But it takes away your pain. That's important. It also re reduces anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay if you see purple elephants as long as they chill your heart out, right? Get a little itchy. It's all right. Nose runs. So what happens? This is the worst part about a heart attack. All of a sudden, you get a blockage in this artery. Downstream, there's no blood flow. You have chest pain, and you're pretty anxious because you're pretty sure you're going to die, right? Not a good feeling. What happens when you have pain and anxiety to your heart rate? Goes up. What happens to how hard your heart pumps? Goes up. What happens to myocardial demand? Goes up. What part of the heart can you not feed at all? The part having the heart attack? That is not a good combo, right? So you took a situation where you can't feed it any blood and we made it even go faster. Oh no, like, but that's terrible. The big thing about morphine is chill everything out. Let's just kind of chill the party down. Because the more you pump, every time you beat more than you need to, you increase the death or increase the damage until I can get there. And I want to buy some time until I get you to the cath lab. Morphine is great for this. Chill them out. Less pain, right? Less anxiety. Okay. Oxygen is a hypoxic event. Oxygen. But remember, just enough to get to 94%. You don't have to go crazy here. Nitroglycerin, I can open up those coronary vessels. It is possible if a STEMI has almost a complete occlusion, if I open it a little more, I can get just a a blood blast, right? I might be able to get something in there. So let's open things up. Or I can hyperperfuse the areas around. Maybe I can get some blood in from the other side, right? Whatever I can do to get more blood there. Aspirin. Aspirin's the first thing you can get, right? Give it anywhere you want. This is not a baby aspirin. Not a baby aspirin. It's a full strength aspirin. Chew it up. I don't care if it's bitter. You get some sublingual absorption, right? And therefore, do it as soon as you can. First thing you can get, give it out in the basketball court with the guy that's a heart attack, and then eventually the other stuff comes along. 
Everything I'm going to talk about, remember, it depends if the patient can tolerate it. If somebody comes into the ER with a blood pressure of 70 over 46 with a substernal chest pain and anesthetic, you don't give them nitroglycerin. Their blood pressure can't handle it, right? Remember, if you're ever in a situation in the ER, let's say, and the patient is going to, you're going to start a nitro drip and you're not sure, I just gave the point away, you're going to start nitroglycerin and you're not sure about their blood pressure, it's a little borderline, you have to use a drip because you can titrate the drip and turn it on and off, right? And it'll go away. Nitro paste is the other thing you can use. We talked about that. You put about an inch, usually on a little thing, you slap it on their chest wall. You can wipe it off, but it's still absorbing. So if you have any question about a patient's stability, do not use nitro paste, use a drip. Right, and on the whole, most time we just use a drip. All right? In the field, they use the paste more than we do in the year. Beta blockers, if they can tolerate it, I want to drop that heart rate down. If they can tolerate it. If they can tolerate it. Lovenox or heparin, okay? The answer is heparin all the time. You could use Lovenox, okay? You can always use heparin. I can never use Lovenox or anoxaparin when I'm gonna to go to the cath lab, right? Because this stuff stays in your system about 12 hours and there are antidotes, but they're expensive and hard to get a hold of. If I'm in the cath lab, you start bleeding out, you blow a coronary, something else happens, I can't get that stuff out of it. If I'm running heparin, shut it down, although there's antidotes as well in 30 minutes, gone. So a heparin drip is the answer for any ACS. If you know it's a non-STEMI or it's unstable angina, you may consider anoxaparin or lobanox. However, I just showed you a case yet the last week of somebody who had a non-STEMI who converted while well, I threw a clot in the overnight, guess what? So for most of us, if it's something we think that's seriously working, I'm not using anything but that, okay? Most, that's not what you're gonna see in the real world, I'm just telling you my, my old man stories, okay? If you think, but it makes sense, right? You gotta think about it, why? Not because they said so, because, oh, well, if it goes bad, I wanna shut it off, good. Let's do that. Oh, but heparin's a pain in the neck. All right, well, it's a pain in the neck if he dies, too, so can you please do it, right? All right, ACE inhibitors, if they get tolerated, their blood pressure can tolerate it, wouldn't it be better, the heart's dying, decrease the power, right, that it has to do the pump, statins. Now, this is kind of weird. You're like, why would you give a torostatin in high dose his cholesterol is not going to go down, Jim, for like another two months, right? Why are you wasting your time? Because statins are anti-inflammatory and antiplatelet at high dose. There's only two that are FDA approved now for high dose. That's a torostatin and a resumostatin. Torostatin at 80, resumostatin at 40. All the other ones are not. And simvastatin at 80 is no longer considered safe. Give them right away. Antiplatelet, anti-inflammatory. High dose. Keep them for at least a month high dose. And then you can drop them down. I see that mistake happen both ways. They don't start high dose, that mistake. The other mistake I see is people on 80 milligrams of torostat for a year. Why are you doing that? <laughs> 40 is the highest you should be on after about a month, okay? Thromboinhibition, which would be the clopridogrel, subridogrel, these things like that. Any of those antiplatelets, right? Stuff like that. This is what you're gonna do in the beginning. All right, so this just has it all spelled out for you, all right? Same thing, absolutely. All right, let's talk about a Q-Wave, okay? You guys do Q-Waves with Keith yet? No, yes? No. Oh, I got Keith feet. I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah. 
I know we talked last week about that thing, the thing I can give you guys access to. I need a list from you guys. Some people have just asked about it, but I need a list of your email and names, blood type, social security number. Yeah, just, just your email's name. You don't have to do it, I'm not saying. I don't care, but I'm just saying. If you want me to do it, you gotta send it to me because then I have to put you in the system. Otherwise, you have to pay for it. No one wants to pay for it, right? No. Right? It's, yeah, it's good. Okay, no stress, either way. QH, all right. This is the deal. This is, let's say, a cross-section of your heart. Let's say this is your anterior wall, okay? This is the endocardium, this is the epicardium, right? This is the myocardium. Cool, myocardium, sorry. If you had a heart attack here, there's two types of heart attack. If you're being simple, you probably know that. There is a transmural, very loud transmural, uh, or there's a subendocardium. A subendocardium can happen anywhere, but the idea is not to subendocardium. It didn't go all the way through the wall. In this case, it was it was endocardium, but right. So this part died, but this starts still alive, right? Now you guys started learning. I think about our wave progression because someone was talking about it. We know the higher the R wave more power, and we know that the EKG is assuming that electrical power equals happy, healthy muscle. So in the case of this, what you'll see is a flattening of the R wave, okay? Because in this case, there'll be less power where there should be. So normally in R wave, if you go one to six, right? That's what you're talking about, right? You should have a negative, I mean one, should go a little up, and three, should go like this, four, should go like this, right? Five is the highest, and then six will go like five. In this case, if this is the anterior wall, so we're talking right about here, three and four, if that's the case, what you might see here is you might see this do this, flattening of the artery. It's, too, it's short, because there's only a little bit of electrical activity here, right? That's a subendocardial. That's how that's going to look. Now, if I have a transmural heart attack, this whole area dies, or not dead yet, but it's dead to the EKG, okay? We hope we're gonna get there with a the cath and they're not gonna die, right? But for the moment, electrically, this is dead. It's like your arm that you fell asleep on, right? I'll let Keith go through it if you guys do the thing I give you. It shows you exactly why this happens, but basically what's happening is that the leads, in this case, let's say it's B3 and, and B4 because we're gonna do anterior, the leads are looking straight through this. It doesn't exist to them anymore. If there's no electrical activity, the EKG can no longer see it. Same way we assume that higher spikes means more electrical activity and therefore more muscle. If we see no electrical activity, no muscle. It's not an actual hole, but electrically there's no muscle. It sees the right side of the heart, therefore, and it translates that into an upside down picture, meaning that now in lead three I have a Q wave, and in lead four I have a Q wave, which is really the R of the right ventricle that you're down, you're seeing it from the other side, right? And then maybe you see the ST elevation like this, right? We call this a, a tombstone or a fireman's hat, right? This, this goes up like this, right? There's your tombstone, okay? Don't do that. ST elevation, right? Not a good sign. This is a bad heart attack. Q waves are forever, right? I'll explain why that's the case too. So when we see the Q waves versus R wave progression, we know whether we have a transmural or whether we have subendocardial. The transmural is worse, right? Transmural is worse. If I don't fix this, which I hope to do in the cath lab, but if I don't fix this and this is dead forever, this becomes dead muscle, then this stays forever. And then what this will look like is instead of having the ST elevation like this, it'll just look like this. 
So this is an old MI Q wave. This is a happening Q wave MI. The lack of ST elevation means it's old because forever this is dead, therefore it never shows up. When we see a Q wave without ST elevation, we know they had a transmural infarct in that area in the past. When we see it with ST elevation, we know this is a bad heart attack. All right, I think this is where Philip and, T and Timmy are. So you can just look at these. I'm not too concerned about these. These classifications, again, these are the ones I was talking about. Here's Philip and here's Timmy. But is uh, basically, like I said, the score people years ago. So a lot of things like this. You guys do GI, you know, Ranson's criteria. It was the same thing. These are just things that we used for outcomes because we had to know, can we keep them here or do we have to ship them out to the, to the big hospital, you know? This is very unlikely to be the case anymore, yeah? Um, so there's two different Timmies, okay? Just have an idea what they are, okay? Uh, I would like you to be educated in case somebody mentions it to you. But understand that, yeah, so you see, it says right here, like based on your score, what is it? The risk of cardiac events and death, death or MI, in 14 days, okay? If you have a higher risk, we better send you out to the hot spots. You know, no. Okay, just something to know. I don't really worry about it. I think it's kind of old medicine. I probably can take it out of there, to be honest with you, but now you can sound smart. So that's good. Over a beer sometimes? Did you know what Jimmy scores? Well, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you won't have to make friends like that. Don't do that. Something good. Right? Absolutely. All right. So, all right, so what do we do to diagnose somebody's having a heart attack or not? All right. Obviously, EKG. You guys know this, some very important things. I know that Keith already told you, read your own EKG. The computer readout at the top is useless, right? 100%. If you want to use the things at the top, like QTC or numbers, that's fine. The computer can calculate that just fine. That's math. But if it says that there's an MI or isn't an MI or whatever, whatever, okay? You interpret your EKG. Read your own EKG. Don't take it from other people if you're going to do that. That's true of everything, guys. One of the things I think is hardest when we start to get into second year as PAs is always the fact that at some point you're going to have to have the sober realization that this is your problem. Okay, so most of us before we got here were in a situation where the doctor it was always a doctor's problem, right? Like me as a paramedic, you know, whatever I did, I had med control, right? Oh, well, I don't know. I could blame it on the med control, or or I could say if I don't know what to do, I just call somebody, right? I could always phone, you know, phone in a lifeline. You do have a supervisor position. You should always ask for help when you need it. I'm not saying you don't have it, but you're responsible for your actions, right? That's the level that you're at. So remember as well that before you act, you must make sure it is okay. If you're in the office and somebody, med tech, takes a blood pressure, nothing wrong with being a med tech, but people can make mistakes. And every once in a while, just being honest, I went in an office for a while, everyone's blood pressure all of a sudden is 120 and means that your med tech is ready to go for a beer and is really sick of what she or he is doing and they're just writing the wrong number, right? You take the blood pressure before you give them the medicine. They, you know, tomorrow they drop, you know, because their blood pressure is really 90 over 60, but the med tech wrote 140 or right? Hope that doesn't happen, but I've seen it. Read your own EKG as well, right? Okay, good. So this is some basic stuff. I just want to show you, the biggest thing I want to show you here is, is a principle, which I don't think I showed you last week. I showed you a little bit. I, I unwrapped the heart last week, right? I showed you, yeah. That's all this is, same thing. So I did this already for you, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's the most important thing to remember. And like I think I said last week, is read by location. Please do not do one, two, you know, you're going to say, look, it's a picture. Anterior ischemia, I've got a lateral infarct. What's going on? 
It's a map, right? Cool. All right, excellent. I did this already. So what are we looking for? Okay, SC elevation, depression. Could be a non-STEMI. I don't like this um, because this is this kind of leads to the fact that maybe this is exactly the way it happens. Non-STEMI can have anything, just not elevation. Okay, non-STEMI can have a normal EKG. Non-STEMI can have T-wave inversion. Non-STEMI can have depression. Non-STEMI can have anything, just not ST elevation. Okay. It's just a non-ST elevation MI. It's not a specific EKG change, right? That's true of unstable angina as well. But ST elevation is ST elevation. Good. Understand that if you have a patient who presents to the ER with chest pain and you have a new left bundle branch block, it is an MI to prove otherwise. So two things with left bundle branch block. Although there are techniques to read a potential heart attack with a left bundle branch block on the whole, I want you guys to assume when you see a bundle branch block, left bundle branch block in particular, you cannot use that EKG, okay? Now Keith will probably show you those techniques because he is, he is really a freak about this stuff, right? He knows this stuff big time. So, and if that's the case, you can maybe use those techniques, but understand, even the people who created the techniques will tell you, <laughs> they're not 100%, okay? So first of all, take a left bundle branch block, EKG is questionable at that. You probably can't use it. Number two, if you have a patient in the ER who has chest pain and a new onset left bundle branch block, so you have a previous EKG, let's say they came in, and this can involve in front of you, literally. They come in, they don't have a block, and now they do, that's a heart attack until proven otherwise, and usually it is. Patient presents with chest pain, EKG is pretty much normal, maybe some mild elevation, but not enough necessarily to kick it, and all of a sudden they get a left bundle branch block, cat block, cat block. All right, so if we look at this CKG, what do you guys see? Have you guys done this yet with Keith or no? Have you gotten this far that you can read that? Not yet. All right, well, let's just read a couple of EKGs together for fun, okay? Um, so let me sit over here so I can see what it is. Um, it's a squiggly line, Jim, I don't know. It's like whatever, all right. So you guys can read the way you want. I always read just, I always just start at the bottom. And there's a reason why, I always start at two. Two, transects the SA node better than any other lead, so it's where you should read rhythm, right? And there's rhythm and then there's geographic. So the first thing I say, look, all right, fine. You know, I got a normal sinus rhythm, whatever. But then I say, two, three, ABF, I look at the bottom of the heart, what do I have? ST, ST elevation, what does that mean? Heart attack, right? So I'm like, oh, I have an infarct, that's a heart attack. I have an infarct in my inferior heart. And then I look at this side, and I look at this side, then I look at the septum, then I look at the anterior. You can do it any way you want, but do it by location. Never, 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 one, two, three, but no, no, you're not in the right mindset. You gotta look at the location, then you gotta think by location, and then you'll see what's going on. So you say, wait, I've got the bottom of the heart is dying. There's maybe some mild ischemia on the, the side of the heart, but there is here. So there's definitely, this side of the heart's a little bit low on oxygen. This side of the heart, eh, a little bit of extension of this heart attack, right? The septum, Definitely is a little ischemic and the anterior is okay. So I really have this area where the bottom's dying, kind of protruding a little bit up the side. That side's a little low on oxygen, but the anterior, which is really my left ventricle, is it's kind of okay. So I don't expect this patient to really crump on me too quick. Okay, so that's good. Um, but I do know there might be preload problems because the inferior heart is the right heart, right? So I might have some preload issues. So be careful. One of the things with nitroglycerin, by the way, is to be careful giving it to somebody who has the right heart or an inferior or posterior mind. It's important to remember that, right? 
careful with nitroglycerin. You guys are going to see a lot of things that say it's contraindicated. It's not. You definitely use drip. You just be careful. But as far as your, your academics are concerned, never do it, okay? The real world, okay? But so be careful. You have to be careful because of preload issues there, right? All right, so what do I have? I got the bottom is dying. And then I got a little bit of an extension of this ischemia here, right? And otherwise I'm okay, right? So you see how we translated this into a picture? That's what this, this is a map. That's what that, this is a properly read 12 leaf. This is what I want you guys to get to. If you read 12 leaf right, is I can see in my brain this from this, right? Then you get, and the other thing is that you can clinically make those decisions, like I said. It's not just she's having a heart attack. It's like, look, well, this part's still pretty much okay in the front. I probably should have a decent, I'm okay. I'm gonna have to work on it. I'm gonna have some preload issues because I got a right heart. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You start to really feel what's going on a little bit. Now, the echo is even better because then I can see it. But I don't even need the echo. It's gonna take a while to get to the echo, right? So this I can do right away. How about this CKG? So I say, look, boom, here's the bottom of my heart. I got sinus rhythm. Here's the bottom of my heart. What do you guys see? It's okay. Pretty good, yeah, maybe spin, I'm not impressed. Yeah, pretty good. Okay, this this side of my heart, pretty good. This side of my heart, well this one's good, but there's definitely some MI here. Yeah. And now I'm like, ooh, septal anterior with a little bit of lateral spread, right? So a big septal anterior what? MI? This, this is a this is a tombstone, right? Not, it's not a key wave though. So but that's a tombstone I don't like. This is not a good look. Like this, especially in the front of your heart. This is like, uh-oh. Right? So this guy, I'm like, oh no, like <laughs> I need to move on this guy. Why is the interior a little bit of lateral? dying now, right? See that? I know I'm not supposed to be teaching, but that's okay, I'll show you. Sorry, maybe this helps, right? Okay, all right, good. So EKG is powerful, right? Powerful, if you use it right. If you don't know how to use it, what is it? Pretty useless, <laughs> you're like, I don't know, it's just some crazy stuff. All right, so what are the labs we're gonna get? We're gonna get troponin I, which is what we're gonna get. It's the only thing we're gonna get nowadays. EKG, you're gonna get basic metabolic panel CBC. Why? If you have a hemoglobin of 8.4, does that affect cardiac function? Yes, it's hard for your heart to pump around, right? Three things that oxygenate you, blood, lungs, heart, and they cannot be divorced from each other. Chemistry, you better know what's going on with kidney function, especially if you're gonna give them dye in the middle of the cath lab. Coags, if I'm gonna put you in the cath lab, I gotta know if you have coagulopathy, you've got an INR. You guys know what INR is yet? INR is related to protein, which is, this is coagulopathy, this is clotting protein, in this case, 10, 9, 7, and 2. And INR is, is a way of making it easy, so it's the patient's protein divided by the international community's protein. And what that means is that they're the same, that the number's one, right? Thanks to math, right? Because the same number divided by itself is one. So one is normal, two is two times as thin, three is three times as thin, five is five times as thin as the average person. It's an easy way of looking at it. Okay, so if the INR was 2.2, they're 2.2 times thinner than the average person because they have, let's say, they're a big drinker and they got a liver problem, okay, and they can't make those clotting proteins, then I might want to be careful. It doesn't mean I'm not doing the cath lab or the catheterization, but I got to know, I better look at that. You know, maybe I want to get some medication. Chest x-ray, look at what else might be going on. They have chest pain. Yes, they could be having a heart attack. They could also be having other things at the same time. It could be related to pericardial issues, that boot-shaped heart. It could be somebody with the thoracic uh, widening of the mediastinum with the anterior, uh, sorry, the ascending uh, uh, aortic uh, dissection, whatever it might be. It could be somebody with a pneumothorax. An echo, of course, is important. 
All right, what are we looking at with echo? Echo is very important because what I said before, there's very few things that are as good short of the cath itself. And by the way, just so you guys know, echocardiogram is always somewhat of a guess. It's very subjective when we talk about ejection fraction, things like this. The best way to determine ejection fraction and wall function and cardiac function remains cardiac catheterization. So if you're going to be doing it anyway, that's when you'll find the truth. Now you don't do a cardiac catheterization just to figure it out, right? That's when we do the echo. Because that doesn't hurt you, you just put the stuff in there, right? But it's still the best way to do it all the time. So but echo here during the heart attack really helps us. You saw that that heart the other day when I showed you that catheterization, that's how it would look on echo as well. You saw that he had a Seuss foot, right? It looked like a Grinch foot, didn't it? So when you saw when it looked at the, it showed you the inside of the heart, it kind of looked like this, right? Right? That's what you guys saw inside the left ventricle. And that's because this wall was just like not moving like it's supposed to. This is supposed to look like this. Pretty well, not like that, that's right. It's supposed to look like kind of this, right? Wrong class, right? <laughs> it's supposed to look like that, right? <laughs> But I thought it's that was that was incredible. Can't have a single cell thing with eyes. I don't know what's going on. It's terrible lighting. I'm going to set right. Okay, so you saw how this really. I can't see. Sorry. So you see how you see that, right? Same thing you saw the Grinch foot. Same thing on the echo. You'll see that that wall that's in trouble won't move the way it's supposed to, right? So.
they have kidney problems, that's not a heart attack, right? Let's say the first one's 1.4, the second one's 1.3, the third one is two, that's a heart attack, right? It went up from baseline, right? So even though this is high, not a heart attack until I see the change. If they have renal failure. If they don't have renal failure in 1.04, it's a non stem provided that they don't have ST elevation MI. Get a question. You're going to take them to the cath lab. It's not semi or pins. When would you do the echo? Uh, you can do the echo anytime you want, uh, to be honest with you. If somebody's hot and heavy, you're probably not doing an echo, just being honest. So, this is the answer, and it's a little complicated, but I want to make sure I get it clear because I want to make sure I teach you guys right. Someone comes to the ER, they have acute chest pain. You do the EKG, you have ST elevation, and you are feeling really good that this is a heart attack, which is not good, it's dope. You put them in the cath lab. I don't necessarily need an echo, okay? If I have to have a bedside, I can do it, but it's not 100%. Why? Because I'm gonna cap you anyway, and I'm gonna get a better picture in about five or 10 minutes or 20 minutes when I get you upstairs. Now you're in the ER. You're having severe chest pain. I don't know if it's a heart attack or not. In other words, I don't like the character of it. You may or may not have ST elevation, and I think it could maybe be, for example, an ascending aortic dissection. Get the staff bedside echo. Because if that's what's going on, you don't want to find that out in the cat lab. Okay? Now, let's say it's a non-stem. No ST elevation. You don't necessarily think it's a, something you've got to rule out with a bedside echo because you don't think it's a, you know, you look your chest x-ray is good, no medium sinus, the chest x-ray pain doesn't fit. You can get an echo now. It's probably a good idea just to give you an idea of what's going on. And one of the things that the echo can do for you there, there's, there's, no, there's no set answer to this, but I'm just giving you the clinical thought process. The one thing the echo can give you in the non-STEMI that's really going to help is the wall motion. Because again, what kind of non-STEMI do I have? And if I have really a lack of wall motion in a non-STEMI, now I'm really more worried this is more serious. Maybe I should put you in that line, you know? As well as the story, like I said, 68-year-old woman with an engine history, now with a recent pneumonia, you know, some chest pain, non-STEMI, maybe, maybe she could have progressed, you know? Uh, young guy doing heroin problem. That's, it just gives you a better picture. No, 100% you have to or not. What is faster, the echo or the enzymes? The enzymes take about 45 minutes in the average. The echo, it could be within two, three minutes, like if you get a bedside idea. So that goes quick. And so there's no reason not to do it. The big thing about the left bottle branch block is the fact that you can't use the EKG. Hmm. Therefore, echo is a great thing to get quick and not wait for the enzymes. Because, so the patient comes with a nuanced left bottle branch block, I send off my enzymes, I gotta wait 45 minutes, maybe half an hour. I've got my bedside echo, bam, oh my god, the interior wall's not even moving. Cat life, right? So that's another example. Excellent. Um, this explains what I was talking about. Uh, this is true, biotin can screw up your levels. You gotta be considerate whether they're on that supplement, because it can mess you up both ways. And just have that consideration that it might be blinding you to a, an elevation that's not appearing, or they may be more elevated than they should be. Um, how fun is that? And I showed you this the other day. So just explain why we're using I. Uh, that's all we are. 
again, this is, I already talked about this. This is talking about platelet count being important too, right? You're gonna be running these drugs that obviously can affect that too, right? Remember that antiplatelet I said we do during cath? Well, Integralin, there's a few other of them. Um, so I wanna know, I already talked about this. You probably should do a beta ECG if the patient's in that age range, it'd be nice to know. May not change your treatment, for, uh, frankly, but you should know. D-dimer, remember what I said, not part of the coronary workup, okay? D-dimer, I don't want this, this is confusing, I think. So D-dimer is not positive during a heart attack, even though you usually have a clot if it's a STEMI, the clot is so small, it does not cause a positive D-dimer. So D-dimer, we're only gonna get when we think we have large clotting things, especially pulmonary embolism, and we're only going to get that when we are not overtly suspicious. So let's just talk about that, because PE is one of the things that we're talking about ruling out when the patient presents. So if a patient presents to the ER, they are hypoxic, let's say their PaO2 on blood gas is 78, right? And you're like, they have fluoridic chest pain, and you're like, I'm pretty sure you have a PE. It looks like a PE, and you guys may not have learned that yet, and if so, I'm sorry. But that's what would happen. In a PE, you get a, the blood flow is blocked in a certain part of your lung. You don't oxygenate there, therefore you can't oxygenate as well. So a big PE presents often with severe hypoxemia and pleuritic chest pain. And sometimes we see right heart strain on the EKG. Let's say you're pretty sure, like I think you have a PE. You don't get a D-dimer. You put them in the CAT scanner with contrast and you look for the PE now. Hmm. The only time we do D-dimer is when we think they don't have a problem but we want to make sure we don't miss it. That's what it's for. Like, I'm pretty sure you don't, but let me do a dimer before I put you in the CAT scanner. Dimer's positive, now I am going to need a CAT scan. Okay? Dimer's negative, I don't need the CAT scan. Got me? Mm -hmm. And I, I think I just jumped ahead like five lectures, but D-dimer is not related to heart. That's all I want you to remember for this lecture, okay? It will not be positive in heart. Uh, consider a pro-BMP maybe, if we talked about that the other day, we'll expound on that when we do uh, heart failure next week. Uh, hemoglobin A1C has nothing to do with acute medicine, but it may be a good idea to see where the person is, because sugar control is going to be for the long term. This has nothing to do with the absolute acute thing. This is going to be longer term, we'll talk about that, okay? Again, you think you have a pulmonary embolism, okay? Alright, put that together. Alright, so let's talk about this patient here. What would it look like if they had angina versus non-STEMI versus STEMI, right? Angina versus non-STEMI versus STEMI, okay? So 75-year-old with diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, 60-pack year history, asking for it, right? Inflammation, inflammation, right? With the cholesterol, has two to five minutes, chest pain goes away, he doesn't have pain now, EKG's fine, enzymes are fine, that is which of the three? That's angina, right? Mm -hmm. Is it stable or unstable? We don't know, so therefore it's? Uh, it's unstable, good. Stable is only when you have a predictable pattern. Anything else is unstable, right? You don't have a predictable pattern. Predictable pattern means that you've been doing this for a while. Every time you walk two, what, three blocks, you get chest pain, every time. This just happened today. There's no pattern to be found, right? So you gotta have something that says they've already been diagnosed with angina, whatever, so this is unstable angina. Okay, good. Um, this is something maybe you wanna do a stress test, right? Because everything's fine otherwise, good. All right, same patient, but now it's two hours of chest pain, and you admit them, and now non-specific changes, but the enzymes are positive, right? That is a 
no SD elevation app? That's an app. Good. All right, so maybe an example of what you might want to do, maybe like half from day two, we'll see what's going on, depending on why they're not semis there. That's where the history is important. But this guy, oh, you'd want to cap him, right? What's the chance of him having a blockage? Oh my gosh, right? Big. If he's 32 years old and he had a hypoxic event, maybe you don't cap him, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, the, understanding the why of non-semi is so important. But in this case, in this case, uh-oh, you know, I would cap him for sure, right? And then this same patient, but now ST elevations, this is a? Stemming. So what's the answer? What do I do with him? Cat lab. Okay. The only time we do thrombolytics is if cat is not available. We're going to go through that in a minute, I think. Okay? All right, so let's talk about more specifics about the treatment and what have you. Cardiac cath. I've already been through that like to the point you probably want to kill me, so I've said a lot of it. Here's the thing about the stents that we talked about. It is what it is, okay? It's just for your information. PCI, percutaneous cardiac intervention is? Same thing, angioplasty, right? Just another name for angioplasty, don't let that screw you up. So, this is just giving you, this is for your information. I've already explained this, we've talked about it. Just for your information, okay? The glycoprotein 2B, uh, 2B3, I'm sorry, 3B2A, this is wrong. 3B2A, 3B2A, okay? 2B3, I can't remember this. We'll get it right. It's not 2 and 2, all right? 2B3A. I want to say 2B3A. We have to look it up. Things like Integralin, okay? It's not 2 and 2. Sense, like I said, we went through this already. All right. All right. This is just for you guys. Some self-induced cardioversion techniques. Uh, one is you can do that. You shouldn't use your sandals to float the electrical cord. Right? Or being barefoot on a metal ladder with a cord in the water. Actually, from a website that says why women are smarter than men, right? <laughs> that's all right. I'm not saying. I might have done some of these things, so I got nothing to say. I'm still here somehow. I was. It was remarkable to me how many times I picked up dead people as a paramedic doing things not nearly as bad as I did. You know, I was like, oh, I, oh that's amazing. You know, <laughs> whether it was on a motorcycle or an ATV or something else, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. God must like me. <laughs> I should be dead. All right. <laughs> it is what it is. I don't know. Now, the worst part, the worst part of my life is now, my youngest is me. My oldest, no. My youngest is me, especially motorcycles. And um, dirt bikes, stuff like that. And I, I mean, I don't like motorcycles. So many dead people as a paramedic, right? So I have to tell them all these things. And someday, I'm going to be able to sit down with this kid and have a beer with him when he's 30 and tell him the truth <laughs> of how many times I had to say to him, no, you shouldn't. And I'm thinking to myself, you're such a hypocrite. Like, he hasn't even beaten me. He's not even close to what I get. Like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You could get hurt. I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere I'm going to pay for being such a hypocrite. Yeah, this is terrible. And I got, I got to try to keep him alive. That's all I'm doing. So far, it's been good. Yeah. It's a good thing, all right? So obviously with PCI, there's some things we have to look at. After we do the cardiac catheterization, you got to be careful afterwards. You watch them for a good 24. Infection can happen, that's probably after 24. The local hematoma at the site, this is big. This is the most common, right? And especially when you're talking femoral. You can, you can do it through a radial approach as well. But this femoral, you can get some retroperitoneal bleeding. You can definitely get the hematoma there. In fact, we sandbag it afterwards, keep it shut. Because remember, it's an artery. Because you know, there's some pressure in there. Uh, aortic dissection, of course, arrhythmia. You can dissect a coronary artery. I told you last time that you know, that's why we got to have uh, cardiothoracic surgery there. You can die. You know, uh, and then renal failure. That, I don't think that's up there. but. Remember, you guys are going to learn when you do renal, what fun that is, um, that die, like 
CT angiocontrast media or the dye we use during cardiac catheterization causes acute tubular necrosis, which can cause renal failure. Right? Uh, thrombolytics again. Um, so thrombolytics are only to be used when you cannot do a cardiac catheterization. Okay? There is no call to use thrombolytics anymore if the cardiac catheterization is available. But when I started, it was all thrombolytics and it just started to move. Stroke now, interestingly, is now moving to catheterization, right? Most of the local hospitals will cap your head if you have a stroke. But that was thrombolytics until recently. And pretty soon that will go away. So thrombolytics should be a thing of the past unless you know, you're, you're in a rural hospital and the helicopter broke down. I don't know, something like that. All right, but uh, the indications for them are people who are having obvious MI. And you can look at just a few things here. But the big thing is you cannot get them, we say, door to table in 90 minutes. Door to table in 90 minutes, yeah. It'll take a while. There's no, there's no magic time. Hours, to be honest with you, hours usually, um, if they work. And then you have the risk of them bleeding to death in the meantime, right? And they worked. They worked. But they don't clean it out the same way. You know what I mean? You don't get the results that we saw the other day in 10 minutes. There's no comparison. So, and now what you can do is sometimes you can do what's called a rescue cat. If somebody has thrombolytics and they do get to the cat lab three hours later, and you feel it's worth it, you can do what's called a rescue cap, it's very risky. So now you have even more chance of bleeding and things like that. If it didn't work with the thrombolytics, right? So gotta be careful. And you don't have to know this whole thing by any means, guys, this is for your information. But I would know the contraindications of thrombolytics. That's always something I would know, right? I would always know my contraindications. They kinda make sense, but you know, any known intracranial hemorrhage. So if someone has a bleed in their brain, would you give them something that's a clot buster? Probably not, like you wouldn't want them to bleed more in your head, right? That's and what else is up there? Known cerebrovascular lesion, because that could bleed, right? Absolutely. No malignant can in, in brain cancer, malignant lesion. So malignancies are friable. They, they tend to bleed easily. They're like tissue paper almost, so they can bleed easily. Someone who had a ischemic stroke in the last three months. So if you have a stroke where you get that blood clot in your brain, you want to say, Jim, that's not bleeding. But it's actually not that uncommon to have post-embolic uh, post hemorrhage. So that area can actually bleed after. You don't want to give them a thrombolytic thing other or a brain bleed. Uh, aortic dissection, obviously you wouldn't. If they're actively bleeding, with the exception of menses, and anyone who's had facial trauma, you don't want them bleeding, right? But if you had someone who was having menstruation and they needed thrombolytics, you can give them. Okay. Fascinating story with that is that the first time that that was brought up, it was never put in the guidelines. There was no guideline for it. Nobody thought about that, I guess, or they didn't address it. And the first physicians who encountered it, nobody knew what to do. Some used it, some didn't, and then they had to go back and make a, make a guideline on it, do the studies, and they found that it was okay. When would I do cabbage? Okay, so that's another thing I can do if I revascularize, right? What are we doing for time? Okay. I gotta get a bigger clock on here. There we go, three, I got a couple minutes, all right. Yeah, this stuff is interesting. You know, this is not a decision you can make like this. It's not like, well, I did these three things and you're okay. Nah, this is so clinical. So clinical, all right? And then again, there are some outcomes, things. You might be better, diabetic. It's very clinical, okay? The biggest thing is when you do a cabbage, when you can't do something else. That's the answer. You do a cabbage when you can't do something else. And why could you not do something else? For the reasons I told you before. Too many vessels, too many stents, whatever it is, that's the answer, okay? So almost always, 
you do the catheterization, you see what you got, and then the doc will say uh, no, and they'll get out, right? Mm -hmm. So they'll do the cath, and they'll be like, wow, that's too much, I'm out, call the, call the guys, let them do the catheterization. That's how it happens. So the biggest story is when I cannot fix it otherwise, cabbage is the answer. Um, and these are some different things. I think there's some studies in there that diabetics with cabbage. I don't know. You know what I mean? I think these are pretty weak. And there's nothing here that's going to tell you this 100%. So this is information I'm based on evidence-based, and I have to share it with you. But I'm just telling you, clinically in the real world, we'll see. Okay? Um, the big thing here is you can use different things, but the most important thing to know is if you use a radial artery, okay, this is the most common. The most common thing is that they take the sap and his veins from the legs. And the important thing to remember if you see surgery is you have to flip them with the valves the right way, right? Because that would suck, right? It's hard to go back in there after you put them all together. It's hard to explain that to a patient. <laughs> so you want to make sure the valves are not obstructing flow, right? Veins have valves, arteries do not, right? So you take the veins, you strip them from the legs, you make sure that the valves are in the right direction, and you bypass with that. It's the most common type of cabbage. You can use the internal mammary, uh, but the radial artery is more common. It is an artery. It has muscles and they can spasm, and therefore you have to use the calcium channel blockers post-op so you don't have that. That's a big difference. And you want to know medically, because otherwise, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm not the surgical guy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is just some stuff if you want to just review what you would do post-op, and you're not going to get, you know, you don't have to know this, you can learn this when you go second year, but what happens, right? A few things we keep in there. Do the cabbage, they leave a temporary facial wire right in there. You're in there anyway, just stick it in there. What's the big deal? It's just a wire, right? That way if something happens, whatever it is, it pace you, anything like that, right? Within a few days, there's also a drain. Just pull it out, it's no big deal, right? Pull it out. Extubate them, they're off, we're good to go. What are the treatments we use? Everything you'd expect, keep those things open, all right? Keep those things open. Good, stress testing. Again, we did this the other day, this is kind of a recap, right? All right, so I explained stress testing already, I'm not gonna explain it again, but stress testing is something you would use for the reasons we said, right? All right, uh, we did that, we did calcification. This is one thing I wanted to go through so you guys are aware of, we didn't go this far the other day. So what we talked about the other day is that if you're gonna do a stress test, which means that the patient's not having an active MI, or somebody who you're not quite sure about, and you don't think they need a catheterization end of the but you want to see where they are, and you want to do this non-invasive way, so that if they fail the stress test, you know they have at least 50%, and you're going to do the cath, but if they pass the stress test, then you might be able to treat them medically. So this is a stress test. And we said you could do it either walking, right, and then you would do the EKG, and then afterwards you could do the nuclear part, which I showed you. You could do it with an echo instead of the EKG and the nuclear part we can do a chemical stress test as well. So if someone can't walk, which means that either they literally can't walk, they're an amputee, or they have, a, let's say, bad COPD or CHF, or they have arthritis, there's no way they're gonna get their heart to the proper level, which is a, we'll call it a target heart rate, then we can use chemical ways or pharmacological ways to bring their heart into stress in two different ways. So this is just a little more on how that would work, okay? So there, there's two different things. This is the first one, yeah. So, in dipermal or adenosine, these work very differently, okay, uh, than dobutamine, okay? These guys, these guys are going to steal the blood, and this guy is going to make the heart work more, okay? So that's one thing to know. 
And the most important to remember is that these are really the lung disease is the big thing here. You cannot get these if they have any lung disease. They have heart block, obviously. If someone has, obviously, a heart, you wouldn't do this, okay? The big thing to remember probably is the severe lung disease. You can't get it, especially asthmatics, okay? Asthmatics, right? Um, remember, asthma is an obstructive lung disease as well, right? Um, so, you had a touch of emphysema, you might get away with it. If you're an asthmatic, you're going to be in the ER status. Uh, endobutamine, which just makes your heart work harder. Okay, you got to be careful with these as far as contraindications. I have an idea there. I really want you to know mostly the lung, like I said, on the other side. All right. All right. So we did motors of blasts. Let's just kind of go through those things if we can. Um, I guess now's the time to take a break, right? So I take a break, and then drugs are antiplatelets. There's a difference between antiplatelet and anticoagulant. Antiplatelets keep platelets from sticking to each other. Anticoagulants decrease clotting factors, which exist within your blood, right? And they make you less likely to clot, not necessarily having to do with the platelets themselves, okay? Direct vomit inhibitors, right? This is what, you're not gonna see this very often. You can use it very similarly to the glycoproteins. Um, you'll see this more in hematology than you will cardiology. The anticoagulants, there's heparin, and then there's lovenox. These are both heparins, okay? Lovenox or anoxaparin is a low molecular weight heparin, okay? Low molecular weight, so it's still a type of heparin. Uh, not, not reversible, it's hard to reverse and it's very expensive. It takes about 12 hours. So I said this one, you could reverse them both to be honest with you, but this one, I just stopped the drip. It just goes away in 30 minutes. That's what we talked about these already, okay? What are some considerations for discharge after someone had a heart attack, let's say? or maybe they had a stent or cabbage or what have you. All right, aspirin for everybody, Flavix for anybody who had a stent. The reason I said, same thing with the bypass graft. It's very possible to have clotting in the graft afterwards, a lot of inflammation in the area. So a good idea to have any of the three, not just Flavix, right? It could be Effian, could be whatever, okay? Um, 30 days, one year, like I said, beta blockers. Okay, to a point here, be careful with this. Uh, if someone's having an acute heart attack, acute heart attack, the answer is metoprolol. I don't care what the injection fraction is, okay? Because it goes away quick. Use an IV, it's easy. Now, if someone's being discharged and they have an EF less than 40, then yes, carbidolol would be a better choice if they have basically systolic heart failure from their heart attack, okay? So this is discharge, so I like this for discharge. Just remember, when we talk about beta blockers in an acute heart attack, I don't care what the ejection fraction is, the answer is never carbidolol, it's metoprolol. Fast acting, I can turn it around, okay? A, so RV or statin, like I said, okay? So, again, we, we kind of went through that already. These studies I'm gonna leave for you guys. Um, the links do work in the PDF, I double checked. I just want you to have an idea when we talk about evidence-based medicine, what we're talking about, okay? And these are some examples, some of them are old now, and that's okay of how we determine these things. This is what evidence-based medicine is, right? Look at a study. That's why we're having so much trouble with COVID. There are some studies finally coming out. We don't have these studies. So we can't do evidence-based medicine, right? As much as we'd like. Uh, we should still look at some of the studies that are out, be a little more honest about them. That's all in the story. So Framingham, I definitely look at it. You need to know Framingham. We're gonna do that when we talk about lipids. Framingham is the longest retrospective, the longest running retrospective study of any study 
in, medication, in medicine, and specifically with heart outcomes, uh, hyperlipidemia, things like that, it is the most robust. But I just want you to have an idea, take a look at these, have an idea for how it is we determine an ACE inhibitor would be good for heart failure, things like that, whatever it might be. Uh, and then remember too, when we talk about studies and your ability to read them, you need to be always in tune. So when you are practicing and something comes out, you know how it is on news, right? It's like, if you're taking medicine X, your head may explode, more at 11, and it's like 6.30, and everybody's like, oh, that's all, they'll watch news at 11, right? And they never tell you the truth. There, were, there was a study that showed that one person who you know, had a large box drop on their head who was on that medicine, their head exploded. You know, that's what the study was. You know? But now everybody's on the medicine is in your office the next morning going, I can feel it. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. You know? So make sure you read the study itself. When you see things come out in the news and it affects your level of practice, whatever you're doing, go find the study, see what the truth is, so you can talk to your patients the next day as to whether it is or is not for them. Um, some more studies here just to show you, you know, where would this comes from, okay? I would just be, have an idea. I'm not going to quiz you in the studies. I don't want to spend a lot of time reading these studies. I want you to read the content. But I want you to have an idea of what is what evidence-based medicine is and why we use it. Um, and these are things that we use throughout the entire talk. So some of these are CHF studies, lipid studies, things like that. So for all our, our five lectures, we're going to use some of these studies and we're going to reference them, okay? So Framingham just gives you a little bit. There's other calculators. I don't think this link works anymore. Uh, we'll talk more about Framingham in the lipid lecture. That's a really, really good assessment to do to show a patient what's going on with them. Because the problem with them is you want them to maybe take a stat, maybe you want to work with a better diet, and uh, they don't feel bad, right? It's a problem with hypertension a lot of times. They feel good. A patient who feels well is very hard to get to, to comply, right? And uh, they're, they're getting hurt, but they don't know it, right? example of what that looks like. We'll go through that when we do the other. So some of the things we have to consider after a heart attack. Someone comes to the ER, we talk a lot about them being in the ER, dealing with a heart attack, throw them in the cath lab, all this stuff. That's great. But what could happen after a heart attack? What are some things we have to worry about? We might have to worry about cardiogenic shock, right? Shock's the inability to perfuse. We talked about that last week too. MAP, etc. If the reason why you have cardiogenic shock is because your heart, well, because you had a heart attack. We talked about using dobutamine, I think, right? Last week, dobutamine first. Good, arrhythmias can happen afterwards, specifically actually in the cath lab as well. So also be aware of what's called reperfusion arrhythmias. Remember that guy did the cath last week? He took the export catheter, he sucked out all the clot, right? And then he perfused the artery afterwards. Gave a little bit of nitro, boom, you saw that blood come in there. Remember that part of the artery and the muscle around it didn't have any perfusion for the last X amount of minutes, right? And so all of, think of what's happening. Some of the cells are dying. So all the cells are having byproducts of respiration that are not being taken away, right? So there's a lot of toxins in the area. And now all of a sudden you flush it full of new blood. What do all the toxins do? Right? So often when that happens, that initial reperfusion, you can have arrhythmia. And then three days later, you can have arrhythmia, right? Especially when you have heart attacks with the circumflex, things like that, you know, where that's right on the SA node, things like that. Mechanical complications, I'll show you some pictures there. Of course, you can have heart failure, thrombus. So sometimes people have a heart attack that's around long enough that that heart just kind of sits there and it's moving, but it's not moving enough and the blood clots up in there. Now we got a problem, we got a big old ball of clump in there. We got to give them anticoagulation until it goes away. It can be really difficult. Sometimes they die here, but sometimes they don't. Dressler syndrome, which is pericarditis after myocardial infarction. And then, of course, death fails. Yeah, you don't have to worry about much after that, but it's bad complications. Good. Cardiogenic shock, I think I've already said all this, but 
What could it be? A lot of different things. Dobutamine, 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 okay? And if not, balloon pump, we talked about that last week as well. Okay, a lot of things can cause cardiogenic shock. So it depends on what's going on. Is the answer dobutamine if you have pericardial tamponade? No. Is it a balloon pump? No, the answer is pericardial synthesis. So it just depends, right? Suck that blood out and you'll be okay. Or fluid, depending on what's going on, use your blood. If they have a pulmonary embolism, is the answer dobutamine? No, fix the pulmonary embolism, you can, right? Maybe dobutamine short term, but you're not gonna give me anticoagulation. Okay, balloon pump, this is just for information, I explained it last time. Descending aorta, it pumps up during gas, and pushes that blood back into the heart that it can't feed itself. Remember, you start one to one, you wean two to one, and when it's three to one, and the patient's tolerating it with a good blood pressure or an acceptable blood pressure, probably still on dobutamine, mind you, get rid of it. This is something that happened, right? So you can have that thrombus. This person has this big clot. This is post-mortem, so this person didn't make it, but there's a big clot, a clump of stuff stuck in there, right? Just because things were so stagnant for a while that it wasn't, wasn't moving well enough, right? You see it on echo, transthoracic would definitely be the, the way to go. It's initial heparin, it can be Coumadin, it can also be a 10A or one of the direct prominence. You guys learning about those yet? Things like Eliquis or Pixaban, you'll learn about those. 10A is direct prominence, you can use those too, not just Warfarin. Uh, Dressler syndrome, again, so this is, I know uh, Professor Memon is going to go through this with you. We talk about pericarditis, but Dressler's is post-heart attack pericarditis. So the patient will come in with a chest pain that's different. It's been two or three weeks since their heart attack. Now they have chest pain that is specifically recumbent. When they lay down, they have sharp chest pain. Usually when they sit forward, it feels better. That's different than the chest pain they had. It's very important to ask them that because people had a heart attack, they're also going to have another heart attack, right? You can have a heart attack three weeks after having a heart attack. So if they come in, you're still going to do the EKG. In this case, you would see diffuse ST elevation, right? In pericarditis, you see ST elevation across everything. They're not having a global heart attack, it's probably pericarditis. They're going to have CRP high, inflammatory markers high. They're going to have that pleuritic chest pain that gets better when they lean forward. And this is one of the only times, like I said, where you're going to treat with steroids or some of those classic NSAIDs, ibuprofen, naproxen, sodium, things like that. Good arrhythmias that can occur, right? Especially post-perfusion, post like I said. All right, lots of different things you can do here. Um, we'll work on that more when we talk about uh, what you do with Dr. Memon, okay? Don't worry about that here. Mechanical complications, you should know, these can happen, so you have to watch for this. We can actually have the wall rupture, in which case you'll have acute pericardial tamponade and death. Septal rupture, in which case you still probably will have death, but you may not. So you might, if it's a small rupture, you might get away with it. And you can have partial ruptures, partial tears, okay? And then the big thing that you can sometimes survive is sometimes if you get the heart attack right about where the papillary muscle inserts into the side of the heart itself, through the mitral valve in particular, uh, you can have it die to the point where it just rips off. And now all of a sudden you have massive mitral regurgitation because the, the muscle is just, you know, this coronary tendon that will lose. If you get into the OR quick enough, you can, you can save those people. I had a few where we've been able to get in there quick enough. And they can do okay, but a lot of times, you know. Uh, all right, so this is an example of a rupture of the actual heart itself, right? The actual myocardium. This would then turn into, you see all this space here? Why is there so much space? Because the pericardium is usually right around the heart, because that was all blood, right? That thing ripped open, all the blood went into the pericardium, and the person had acute pericardial tamponade and death, right? Because this is a postmortem. The other thing I want to show you here are two things. 
these postmarks are awesome for showing you the truth. Remember I told you the thing that bugged me is that people draw the heart with both sides of the same, and that bothers me. There's a big guy in the room and a little wimpy guy in the room. Now, this is also a little bit more extreme. I'm gonna show you a normal looking one next. Hmm. This is somebody with concentric hypertrophy. This is LVH with concentric hypertrophy. Do you see how small the inside of the heart is? Yeah. That's diastolic failure in, in its real form. That can only fill up with a little bit of heart, a little bit of blood. And even though 60% might leave because it has a preserved ejection fraction, it's 60% of that tiny amount. This is what a heart, normal heart looks like. It has a septal rupture, but the, the actual physical heart is about what a normal heart looks like. Do you see that you've got the big guy and the little guy? Look how wimpy the right ventricle is. Hmm. Big guy, little guy, right? Look how big this hole is. That's a normal inside of a heart that does not have diastolic failure. But look how small this is. All right, so these tell a you know, thousand words, right? This is, tells a picture story more than I could. Mm -hmm. I know we're talking about wall rupture, but I want to take the time to just show you this. I think I put them in the CHF one. Septal rupture, this is papillary muscle, right? From the mitral valve, mm -hmm. ripped right off, okay? All right, so some other things are, so we talked about heart attack a lot, right? Probably to the point you want to cry. And I heard you guys have a lecture after this, and I feel sorry for you. On the way home, I'll say a prayer for all of you. Stay awake, number one, which would be a miracle in and of itself, and number two, to retain the information that's sent to you. All right, because that's, that's tough, it's late. All right, so what happens if you have not enough oxygen, it's somewhat, you know, to do your heart, but it's not because you have an obstruction of the vessel. It's not because the vessel itself is necessarily spastic, although it could be some type of a compression, like when we talked about Prince Metal and Vagina, basic spastic vagina. These are some things that we should talk about, right? All right, silent ischemia. This is a weird one. It's hard to diagnose. It's just something to be aware of. Somebody who basically does not have any symptoms of something going on, okay? Everything kind of looks okay. They're not having chest pain. They may have a little shortest breath, maybe some fatigue. They may have erectile dysfunction. They may be asymptomatic, but over time, we start to see in the echo that they do start to dilate. They're getting ischemia what happened. This can be because they have a small amount of, of vascular disease and they're diabetic. It can also be true silent ischemia, but we don't really know why this happens. Okay, so sometimes people don't tell you what's going on until it's too late. That's what happens here. All right, so um, if you do a stress test, you're going to see it. But the problem with these people is a lot of times there's no reason to do the stress test. You don't know. They don't have, it is silent, right? But if you can find it, then you can, you can treat it, okay? Spontaneous coronary dissection, okay? So we said you could dissect or even rupture when you did a cath, but that can happen by itself. So all of a sudden, one of the coronary vessels dissects. Okay, now, do you guys know the difference between aneurysm and dissection? Did anyone tell that to you? Maybe, maybe not. So it's an, important, it's an important distinction to make, and it'll help you with other stuff later, but it's important that we make that. And there's an aneurysm and there's a dissection. They're two different things. And then there's a rupture, okay? so. All arteries have those three layers, right? So fine, there's muscle, there's the inside, here's the muscle, there's the outside, fine. Okay, aneurysm is when this blows out. So aneurysm, everything stays intact, but it got bigger. So like, let's say it went like this. Like a little, like almost like a, a blown out tire on a bicycle, or an avocado. So um, either way, and so this blew out, but everything's intact. That's an aneurysm, right? If I have a dissection, I've dissected between these layers. 
that's the problem. So now what I might see is something like this, where here, blood has gotten into here, and it's like this, and it kind of dissected underneath, right? That's a dissection. And then at some point, obviously, this could rupture, and the whole thing could broke, break open. That's different, right? A dissection does not mean a rupture, although it could, right, at some point. So a dissection is going to be a problem. They tend to be acute. The cornea will usually dissect from the aortic area, and, and now I have this acute chest pain. And I have the concern for rupture, in which case you would end up with, again, pericardial tamponade, bleeding, and death. Okay. High-risk patients are mostly people with connective tissue disorders. Remember, all pregnant patients have connective tissue issues. Why? Because everything, the relaxant, everything that makes the pelvis open up to relaxes other stuff sometimes too, right? So we gotta be careful there. Also other things like Ehlers-Danlos, people with Marfan syndrome, things like that, okay? So it looks like a heart attack, but then you'll see the dissection when you do the cath, okay? Sometimes these can be stented over and you're okay. Sometimes they need immediate, immediate cardiac surgery and uh, we gotta figure it out, okay? So if you can't stent it, you gotta go into cardiac vascular surgery over the heart, but a lot of times you can stent through it. Uh, legal drugs will sure do it, right? So anything that's phasospastic especially, so again, methamphetamines, uh, cocaine. Listen, there are a lot of people who are not young who do coke, okay, all day long, right? But what they're saying here, and this is not inappropriate, is you got somebody who's 19 years old who shouldn't be having a heart attack right now. It should be a question you'd be on your mind, right? You know what I mean? What have you been doing, right? Um, Syndrome, Syndrome X, this is something that's a little funky as well, okay? You've got the chest pain with exertion, okay? You get the positive stress test, but you're okay, okay? It's not vasospastic angina, not vasospastic angina, okay? But in this case, patients tend to be fine. They just have this exertional chest pain, okay? So they're not spasming. It has to do with their, there's an uptake issue in their ability as far as their myocardial demand, okay? Um, and you can do a little medical treatment, but on the whole, they do well. I just have an idea about this, okay? Anomalous coronary artery should know about this usually presents in a child because it's presented since birth, right? So this happened at birth, so symptoms usually present in the child because they're having chest pain. We mentioned before that the, in order to be functional, really, a coronary artery should be epicardial, right? It should be on the outside of the heart because we wouldn't want it to be inside the muscle. What if it was inside the muscle, and then when the heart squeezed, it would squeeze the blood out of itself, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. What if the artery was between the aortic and pulmonic artery, a valve, I'm sorry, and every time I squeeze the blood out of it, that would be bad. This is anomalous coronary artery. Now, some people have anomalous arteries, it doesn't make a difference, they're fine, but sometimes they cause a lot of problems. So if you have somebody like who's subendocardial, like I said, or somebody who's in between the valves like this, you're gonna have chest pain. So you have this angina type of presentation in a two-year-old, this is something to consider, right? Um, all right, surgery is often what happens, okay? All right, Takasugo, we should have a clue about. I thought I did this in cardiomyopathy too, but we'll see, we'll do it now, and we'll do it later if that's the case. Just have a clue about Takasugo. Um, Takasugo is a weird event, okay? This is, this is almost always in women, and that's just the way it's been so far, and maybe someday it proves to be different usually 50 to 60 years old after an acute stress event. It's believed to occur because of acute catecholamine release. And specifically what happens is you get apical banding or contraction of the heart. I'm sorry, not apical, you get apical, apical ballooning, apical ballooning because you have 
expanding of the heart higher up due to this contraction. So if you think your problem with your heart is that it's an upside down triangle, right? Mm -hmm. So the apex and base thing is kind of a confusing thing, right? So your heart is like this, right? And that's kind of like a triangle. Here's the apex of the triangle, here's the base of the triangle, but the apex is down and the base is up, right? I didn't design this, it's just the way it is. Okay, so that's your ventricle right here. Acute catecholamine release up high here. This area bands across and squeezes in like this. So what you get is apical ballooning, and specifically on cap, because that's where they end up. You get a picture where it looks like, like this, almost, right? It's all stuck in here. And this is all ballooned out, the apical ballooning. The tip of the heart has like a balloon. And that's what an octopus cock looks like, and Takasuo is an octopus cock in Japanese. That's why it's called that. Okay, so they present almost like an MI. They have SC elevation, they look bad. You know, their husband just died, or their friend just died, or something terrible happened, and now they, the reason they could have a heart attack, put them in the cath lab, you see the apical ballooning, or the arteries are clear, and you let them sit for a few days, usually they resolve, not always, but they can, okay? And usually tend to, and it looks like a heart attack at the time, okay? Um, I think that's pretty much where, again, 90%, most metabolism women, just been the way it's been, it's been since the 90s, so we'll see, maybe that changes over time as we get more data. So here's what the ventricle looks like, apical ballooning. Thins out here, and it gets thick here, and it squeezes in. It doesn't thin out as much as this picture, though. Uh, that's what an octopus pot looks like, I don't know. That's exciting stuff, right? Here, here's, here's your Seuss foot. So, um, all right, so here's a normal ventricle, all right, and here's a Takasuba ventricle, all right. Banding and apical ballooning. What could be, it could be anything, I don't know, stress out. Treatment is hang out. Treat them like an MI at first, support them, and they tend to do well. Uh, but sometimes they don't, and we can have this, right? The mural thrombus is one of the biggest things that's a concern here, because that ballooning that happens towards the end, that blood just sits there. So that's really a concern. It's, for me personally, I've only seen this a few times. It's not that common, but I have seen some thrombus with it, for sure. Uh, yeah, tend, tend to do pretty well with it. All right, I'll oh, finish it here. All right. It's always good to review this afterwards, make sure I've covered everything. It's not going to change. I don't, I don't. I hate reading from PowerPoint. It's not going to happen. Um, right, but if it was up to me, I wouldn't have a PowerPoint. I would just come talk to you guys for four hours. What? Um, so we have a little time. But uh, any questions? It's a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone needs a lot of coffee now, right? What do you have like a half an hour to prepare? Do you guys like run around the building or something? What do you do? Pretty much. Like Red Bull coffee, some cocaine, and you run around the building, right? That's pharmacology right there. All right. Okay, guys, I'm here if you have any questions. All right, I'll see you next week. Thank you.